The spoils of war have come and gone. And I hope too many of you weren't spoiled ahead of time on the spoils of war, because, you know, there was the leaks and everything. But it was an amazing episode, really spectacular, really fun, and of course we have a lot to say about it. And thankfully, there's no uh, Storm God messing with us today, as far as we know, so we do have Lady Gwyn, which is great, so welcome back. Lady Gwen of Radio Westeros, how you doing? I'm very happy to be here. This is a total bummer. I sat in the dark for three hours last week while you guys had fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, that doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> no, I'm glad I'm here, though. And Yoke Boy, of course, is here, too. Hey, broadcasting from deepest England. Really glad to be back. Cool, cool. And obviously, we have Ashea here, both running production and answering questions and handling all sorts of different things all at once. Because I am in the live stream, your questions will be answered at the end of the episode. We will get to very few questions throughout it, except unless they're a super chat. So a couple of things before we start. Think of how epic that scene with Daenerys and her dragon in the battle was. Now, and then imagine 18 dragons in a war. That's what the Dance of the Dragons was like. There were 18 or 19 dragons. Not all of them fought, but most of them did. And just picture that. Well... We here at History of Westeros and our friends there at Radio Westeros have long talked about doing a joint episode or series of episodes about the Dance of the Dragons. And this just reminds us of how much fun and, and important a topic it is because of just being reminded of the potency of dragons and how powerful they are. And we now, especially with the news of Fire and Blood Part 1 coming out as soon as next year, we actually have a plan for that, or at least the beginnings of a plan. Because before... We, we didn't have the complete story, so we were going to have to make up for that. Just do what we could. Now we have, apparently in Fire and Blood, we're going to have the whole story. So we can both not have to wait forever to get the whole story and do this joint episode, you know, within a reasonable time frame. So that's really awesome. My jacket's all messed up here. I got my Dothraki lawyer jacket on here <laughs> because we're expecting lots of damage, uh, liability claims, um, fire damage, <laughs> property claims, all that. So... You know, if you guys need me, give me a call. Um, I'm your man for that. <laughs> Thanks to all of our patrons and Radio Westeros' patrons as well. We got a lot of questions from y'all. And because there's been so many questions, I've been cutting the podcast versions of these episodes a little short and cutting out some of the Q&A. However, I decided with the last episode, why cut all of it? Why not keep it somewhat and post it for patrons? So what I did on Monday's show only is it, it ran, the live stream was three hours, but I took about 40 minutes of questions and put that up for patrons only to hear. I didn't edit it much at all, so it's just questions without an intro or an outro. Just a little extra bonus material. I figure it's better than throwing it on the scrap heap and letting no one hear it. So if you want access to that, patron, you can get that for $1 a month. That's all it costs to have access to that bonus material. So really, that's hardly an obstacle at all. So that's cool. And or you can join us on YouTube. That's true. You can also just join us here for these live streams and catch it all. Thanks to our Dragon Rider patrons who make so much of this possible. We have, of course, first is Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, Rider of Maslacartho, the White Dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, our eldest dragon. And we have Telenis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black, featured here by Ed Shear. Oh, hey, that rhymed. 
And Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Irogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Art for Irogenia is underway. And also thanks to First Sword Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, first and foremost amongst our swordsmen. If you haven't gotten your patron title, a lot of people have come forward after, you know, we've added a lot more names and titles and people are having a lot of fun with that. So some people didn't have a name that now are wanting one. We're a little behind on that. We're catching up slowly. So please be patient if we haven't gotten to yet. And also want to say that some people, especially new patrons, I want to make sure you know that there is patron messages. Uh, Some of you all sign up and I respond and give you a message and ask what you'd like for this and that. And I never hear back from you all. And that's totally fine. But I just want to make sure that you know that you're getting these messages. Some people are probably ignoring them on purpose, but other people may not be aware that Patreon has an internal messaging system. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I just want to make sure no one is getting uh, getting lost in the shuffle or lost because they didn't know they were getting emails. We'll start off with something fun here. There's been cameos and in Game of Thrones, and the more they go by, the more cameos they have. Of course, Ed Sheeran is a really famous one. Most of the cameos are a lot sneakier, and a lot of them are musicians. Here is a particularly sneaky one. This is Noah Syndergaard, pitcher for the New York Mets, and he's the guy that throws a spear at the Dothraki right when they clash the line, which is appropriate because he is has the highest average fastball velocity among all Major League starters. That was probably too nerdy of a statistic, baseball statistic for you guys, but hey, I'm a baseball nerd and I can't help myself. All right, um, Radio Westeros, what did you think of the use of sound and music in this episode? I thought it was really excellent, really um, above the norm. Of course, they always, you know, Raman Jawadi is amazing, so it's always the music is always great, but I thought it was particularly standout here. Did you guys take note of that, or was that something that you uh, you paid attention to much? Yeah, I always notice the music is 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 just so brilliant in in Game of Thrones, and it, it, it the great thing about it it evolves. You know, they pick up themes and motifs, and you, you hear something, and you've heard it in the previous seasons in a different form or in a different place. And uh, this episode excelled in, in the battle and also in the cave. I noticed the music was great. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a for, another form of callback. And in, in, on Monday, Sean and I talked about how. When you have a TV show that's been running for a long time, you can do lots of callbacks, and it's and it's fun to do those callbacks. What you're just describing, Yoke Boy, is musical callbacks, and that's a whole different thing, but a very similar related concept. Yeah, they use a lot of different motifs for different characters, and sometimes they'll mix them, you know, into one new song. Yeah, it's really, really fun. I like that a lot. So, one other announcement um, before we get going. We're going to talk about the symbols a bit this episode for the cave paintings. And our good buddy, Lucifer Means Lightbringer of the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast came to us and and suggested us having an extra talk about that. He's got a lot to say about that, of course. That's his specialty. So, we're talking about setting up a special episode just for that. It'll probably be on a Friday or a Sunday. So, soon, probably. He's excited to talk about it and I'm all, I'm game. And so we'll, we'll, we'll set that up shortly. So y'all, um, if you have any questions for us with that regard, maybe save them for that. Um, but for now, we'll cover some of the basics at the very least and get in deeper when we've had more time to think about it and uh, process it, et cetera. So let's get into it then. Let's do it. Let's we start off with the North here. And of course, Arya first returns to Winterfell. We'd seen that one shot of her looking at Winterfell from afar on her horse in the you know, trailer last week, and it is a stunning shot. But I also thought it was really funny how 
Arya, how Arya keeps getting people laughing at her when she tells them the truth. <laughs> and that she had basically the same thing happen to her that happened when she tried to get back into the Red Keep in season one in that they didn't believe her. They wouldn't let her in. And she told them both times, I live here. <laughs> yeah, that was a definite callback, wasn't it? It really struck me in that scene. I thought, I've seen that before. And um, Arya spent her whole arc being other people and wrestling with identity. And now at this point, so late in the story, she she still struggles to be herself. I thought it was, uh, you know, interesting on a kind of thematic level. I'm very glad she stuck around because I thought she was going to ride off. <laughs> we got a $20 super chat during that. Relevant to Arya, they said, uh, Amber Littlefinger said. Nice name. Yeah, nice name. <laughs> What's with Arya? Everyone's on Bran's behavior, but Arya's behavior, when she was coming to Winterfell and asked, which Lady Stark? Red flags. What other Lady Stark would would it be? Foreshadowing. Either the faceless men coming for her or not really Arya. I think that it is, is Arya. Question. What other Stark yeah. would there have been Lady Stark with her? That's a good question. I didn't catch that. Well, yeah. she. I think that she would have thought that maybe John got married. Yeah. Okay. That was what I thought. Yeah. Right okay. There. That's a fair point. Yeah. Someone marrying someone. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was a reasonable question to ask because um, she didn't know Sansa was there. I don't know what she thinks the deal is with Sansa, where she thought she was or what was going on, but she certainly didn't think she was at Winterfell. Yeah, and I do think maybe I wonder about the faceless men whether they're going to come for her. I kind of don't think they will. I kind of think like the wave came for her, and because and Jacken was just like meh. <laughs> so, but I think the books, I don't think it'll be so easy for her to get away. I think they will be coming for her there. So that's that's a different different thing. Do you guys but, have any takes yeah. on that? Um, I, I think that she she earned their respect. You know that that was the vital thing, and I, I think she she had permission to leave. It was a kind of like you know she she earned it. She earned something. And I don't think that the, 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 she's already had the cost in the training, you know. She she left having the respect of Jacken in the TV show. Like you say in the books, it might get more complicated. Who knows? <laughs> um, Amber Littlefinger said in a super chat, if John got married, that would be Lady Snow. <laughs> Arya would definitely be thinking that if John is the Lord of Winterfell, he might be legitimized by That's now. true, yeah. He may like, call himself Stark. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, if, if John Snow got married, it would be Lady Snow, but... He could take the name Stark, yeah. Certainly Stannis offered him the name Stark. You know, bend the knee and I'll make you a Stark. It'll legitimize you. All right, so let's keep up with the North here. What else about Arya? We have her reunion with Sansa, which I think was the most moving of the reunions for me since uh, John and Sansa met back up and that the Bran reunions have been heartbreaking, but less moving and more like, Bran, you're so weird. But uh, <laughs> in this case, I thought it was particularly moving, this conversation that Arya and Sansa had in that uh, they have this conversation where they're talking about their journeys and their experiences, uh, the story behind it. And Sansa says hers was not a very pleasant one. And Arya says, mine neither. But our stories aren't over yet. And then Sansa says, no, they're not. And then Arya goes in for the hug first, which mm. I definitely cheered up right there. I thought it was a great scene, great mm. acting. It was, it was wonderful. Lady Gwen, what about you? Uh, I thought it was, first, it was a great scene. Like you said, very happy to see it. Waited for it for a long time. Um, obviously, we've never seen this these sisters uh, get on like this. Last time they were together, they were throwing things at each other. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was heartwarming after all they've both been through. 
I did want to point out that that scene contained an homage to Maester Lewin's words um, oh. in A Game of Thrones. In Bran's final point of view chapter in Game of Thrones, when he, you know, when they learn that Ned is dead, the last sentence in that chapter is um, Maester Lewin saying, my lords, we shall need to find a stone carver who knew his likeness well. And that's just how it ends. And here we have... As Sansa says, everyone who knew his likeness well is dead. Right. <laughs> At least yes. people who know how to carve in stone. <laughs> there probably weren't a whole lot of those in the first place, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think in you know I don't think in the books they ever did manage to find the person who knew his likeness well because uh, Winterfell was sacked. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> long, long after, after, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, York boy? Yeah, oh, I love the scene. The, I thought that the the crypts was just like the perfect place. To reunify the sisters, it was personal and it was quiet and just a little bit of creepiness in there. But it was it was lovely to see like the, these two opposite characters kind of bonding and reflecting over all the damage they've been through and all the changes they've uh, uh, undergone. I thought it was a really beautiful reunion, a great scene, and I really hope that those two can now realize that their personalities personalities can be complementary rather than. You know, they don't need to clash every five minutes like they used to. I hope they've both grown up now. Yeah, I mean, I think there are going to be some clashes, but hopefully they're not big clashes. Hopefully they're just regular sibling rivalry type stuff or sibling... No more blood oranges. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> just regular oranges. <laughs> yeah, they didn't they didn't rush into each other's arms, but they weren't wary or hateful. They certainly, certainly love there, and Arya's humanity you know, was still there, even though she's a little off, but she's still got plenty of humanity left, which is a contrast to Bran, who maybe will, maybe there's still some humanity left in him that is hiding because of how awful his recent experiences have been, but we'll see. So let's talk about Bran then. Yeah, let's do it. Personally, uh, right off the bat, I was, we saw Bran in his wheelchair and i was like man wolken got to making him that wheelchair it also shows the passing of time i think but remember yes. wolken didn't know about uh how long the longest winter is so i'm guessing <laughs> he got his link in like engineering carpentry <laughs> not history or in the south where they don't care about winters as much maybe yeah yeah he just, he just didn't remember that <laughs> he's in dorn <laughs> but he got him a wheelchair built i've been wondering how, how that would happen if it was just going to be a thing that happened off screen or what uh, Lady Gwen, what did you think about the chaos is a ladder line that uh, Bran says to Littlefinger oh. right as right as they're about to be interrupted? Well, uh, by the way, I think that was a little callback to so many things in the book where something awesome is happening, like conversation, and then something interrupts them before they can finish it. This felt like that. Yes, kind of <laughs> definitely like that. Uh, it rattled Peter Baelish, didn't it? In, in a way we rarely get to see him rattled. Uh, I think the, in my opinion, from that point on, the Starks turning against him was pretty heavily telegraphed in the episode. Bran and Arya, and even Sansa, who's who's been pretty cold to him all along. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I still think we'll get to see Bran reveal Littlefinger with the dagger at Ned's throat from season one. Incidentally, not the same dagger. I saw a couple people wondering about that. Different dagger, but yes, I think we'll see that. I think this kind of hinted at that. Bran is seeing Littlefinger saying and doing things, uh, and Littlefinger's getting a little nervous. Yeah, 
You know, there's something uh, I've seen a couple people talking about, so I can't credit any one person. I've seen it around a few different people that Littlefinger is pulling the reverse Ned there. Also, it's easier just drinking milk. Okay. But uh, ah. <laughs> anyway, but, but the Littlefinger <laughs> is essentially doing a reverse Ned. He's going it's... north to his doom to where his politicking doesn't uh, do anything. <laughs> That's true. That's right, a good he's point. just out of his depth completely, as Ned was in the South. Yeah. But I am wondering, what is Littlefinger's goal here, specifically here, as in in giving the dagger to Bran, but really in general? Uh, I liked another joke that I've seen a few people say is that Littlefinger just knows that boys like gifts, like Sweet Robin. He's just going <laughs> with what he knows. But yeah. also the idea that he's just going to go to each Stark child and express his love for Catelyn. He's just yeah. telling him, hey, I had a thing for your mother slash your mother figure. He's <laughs> almost playing playing a role of a kind of creepy stepdad, isn't he? Like yes. ingratiating himself with the children, you know. Hey, yes. we can be friends, you know. I know. I knew your mother, you know. I loved your mother. <laughs> he's definitely Yeah, I'm your daddy of, now. He's, a, he's being a bit like that in my eyes. Yeah, there's an air of bribery there. And the fact that he, he's completely underestimating all of these people as well. I agree for sure. He's underestimating them. Yeah. They're not sweet Robin. <laughs> They're not. No, no. Joe, but yeah, that's this very simple kid. And these are, you know, epic magic children or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Joe Buckley wanted us to point out that there was a sh- the shot of going from Bran's dead eyes to Littlefinger's surprised and confused eyes after the chaos is a ladder line was really something. Uh, now, I actually went back and watched that scene. The chaos is a, is a ladder scene. It's episode six of season three. It's Varys and Littlefinger in the throne room. And it, the, the context of that conversation is them both undermining each other and how they're, you know, playing games with each other. And it culminates with Littlefinger revealing that he gave Varys's spy to Joffrey. That spy was Roz. And, of course, we then get Littlefinger's voiceover as we see poor Roz shot full of crossbow bolts by Joffrey. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> That's that. Now... Let's go a little farther here um, uh, with Arya, Sansa, and Bran. And when we get to Arya's fighting scene, I've got more to say about the dagger. But we'll, we'll wait for it to come full circle because Bran <laughs> giving the dagger is part of what makes this all interesting. This, What do you guys think about the possibility of this happening in the books about a, a stark reunion of most of the kids? Maybe even with Rickon because it's no certainty that Rickon will die in the books. Maybe all of them will have a reu- be reunited in the books where George will actually have time to explore that. Where the show is... A little bit limited in his time constraints, he can't spend a whole lot of time with them discussing every single aspect of all of their past and everything they've gone through, such as Rickon's death, which maybe that should have been the thing that they talk about. But what do you guys think? Lady Gwen, start with you. <laughs> well, for, yeah, I thought it was a bit odd that nobody mentions Rickon. <laughs> hey, remember remember that other brother, the other kid that used to be around here? Whatever happened to him? Nah, I don't remember him. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but as far as the, the the books, I've I've always felt that there will be a reunion of kind of the four that we're seeing, the four point of view Starks, Arya, Jon, Sans, and Bran. I've always felt really strongly that they're all going to end up back at Winterfell, and I also feel equally strongly. I'm sorry that Rickon is um, not going to survive in the books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> but that's you know. Brace yourselves, folks. Lady Gwen's on team Rickon dies. I'm on team Rickon is a shaggy dog. (laughs) What about you, Yuck Boy? 
Yeah, I agree with Lady Gwynne. She has always said to me that, you know, it's it's standard storytelling fare that there's got to be a reunion for the kids. And Lady Lady Gwynne's read a lot of kids' books. So I really trusted her. So <laughs> and the, I think that the Starks going away, undergoing change, and then coming back home a bit different, you know, kind of could be at the heart of this story it drove the story in the beginning although i think it's it, as a saga it's going to have a few hearts but certainly this could be you know the center of things for for the you know the northern storyline if you want one one thing i'll say to people who are holding out hope for rickon is yes the shaggy dog story may mean that he's his story is pointless but george came up with the concept of rickon being a shaggy dog story long before he made some of the major changes he's made to the main story. Like that was before he dropped the five-year gap and all these other things. So his his plans for Rickon very well may have changed. So let's hold on to that. Yeah, in, in terms of this Arya, Sansa, Bran reunion, before they actually reunited, I love this moment with Sansa telling Arya that Bran is home too. As Arya, she breaks out into this big smile, but realizes that something is wrong due to Sansa's face not looking quite so happy. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, oh, I just felt so bad for, for all of them that, that they still can't be completely happy. Yeah, that's, she's breaking the news about Bran, and that's, I guess that's why she didn't break the news about Rickon yet, because, yeah. you know, that's harder to deal with. <laughs> I mean, well, Arya hasn't even been told about the Whites yet. She doesn't even know about Night King, I don't know, like, <laughs> several things she hasn't been taught yet. Yeah, um, I was thinking they have a lot to catch up on, like, yeah. a lot. <laughs> Yoke boy, you had some uh, some more thoughts on this about uh, the Stark kids. Yeah, it's just it's it's quite cool to think of it in this light that Arya has her new kind of martial skills, Sansa's got new political skills, and Bran's got these prophetic skills. It would be damn fine if these three could kind of get together and coordinate their new talents for a common goal. You know, they're now united despite their differences in purpose and you've got you've got you've got the opportunity to face off against the white walkers and you've also got um on a short timeline the common enemy of peter baelish so i wouldn't want to be peter baelish at this point (laughs) (laughs) so we also have before we get to the fighting brandon mira is something we need to touch on at least yeah obviously mira says she's going home she's going back to Greywater watch she has to talk to her father and share the news about jojen and all these other things that she's gone through she is the heir to Greywater watch now so that raises the question that i think a lot of us are asking is one will we see Greywater watch in the future or you know two will we see mira again potentially with howland reed we don't have to see Greywater watch to see mira and her father yeah um, I wonder about her going home in the books, too, whether that's going to happen or whether she'll even survive beyond the wall. There's, you know, Mira survived in the show as the one companion. But, you know, maybe it'll be Hodor or someone else because or nobody. Bran, maybe someone suggested Bran pull himself back to the wall by warging into a bear or something like that. That'd and be great. Maybe. Yeah, so there's no guarantee <laughs> Mira survives. But if she does, yeah, I would, it would kind of make sense for her to go fetch Howland Reed maybe. And that's how he gets into the story. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure. 
You know, a lot of people joke about, you know, Littlefinger or Jorah being friend zone, but I feel really bad for Mira. She didn't even get that much. Yeah, that she wasn't, wasn't even, even really friendly. a friend. Yeah, no. that was just I, zone. I, yeah, I just really <laughs> do feel for her. She really genuinely cared about him. She put so much into this. Her brother died for him. I mean, how much of her life has she spent doing this, this awful experience? And <laughs> I mean, she got him home, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, she must feel awful. And she has to go tell her father about this I, I don't know i really want to see that conversation don't i mean it would be great yeah it's a real shame because you know she's she's got the kind of capability to kind of humanize bran a bit more she she's you know they they were friends not so long ago and now she's gone it's it's a, it's a bit of a shame that she can't stick around and kind of bring him down to earth and and, and provide a bit of grounding for him Bran, on the, he just is. We're watching too much Weirnet TV, I think. <laughs> no time for friendship or kind of even romance. If you want to, if you want to wonder about that, if he if he can find himself somehow, Mira would have, you know, probably made a, a, a suitable partner for him. Although she she might not want to hear any of that now. He's kind of t- turned his back on her. I doubt yeah. she holds him in high regard. There's worry about Bran truly losing himself. But on the other side of the coin, you know, we, we've been worried about Arya previously with the same kind of thing when she was doing the faceless training. Is she going to be Arya at the end of this? So I, maybe the message is that you're always that person. You know, you're always yourself under the mountains of crap that's on top of it. Somewhere there's always going to be Bran and that's what I hope for. Yeah. yeah, I tend to think that uh, one thing is that, you know, Bran is such a small portion of his experiences in this body now that he has the Werewood net that is, uh, you know, taking up most of his mental space. But as he experiences things right now, he's, you know, living at Winterfell. He's talking to Sansa. He's talking to Arya. I wonder how much he'll come back to himself, himself or start to form a new brand, you know, and I think that that was maybe slightly evidenced or at least shows his connection with Arya in particular and that he did put his hand on Arya's back when they hugged. I think it's interesting, too, that Bran, I mean, you can kind of think about Bran as like someone who's just been given the Internet in a world where the Internet doesn't exist, except that the except that this Internet is full of complete utter truth instead of all kinds of lies and propaganda and you know how the internet is i don't need to explain that but so yeah i can see why that would be distracting you know you'd want to look at everything and everything that takes a while um <laughs> i could see why that might be distracting. we did get a super chat from acre fray thanks uh, james and he said do you think mira will be compensated by the starks for helping brand through everything hmm. I, I'm doubtful, to be honest, whether she'll really, whether the Reeds will get their just due, unless they come back into the story, then yeah, I think that they will be held in high regard, but in terms of the show, I don't really think we'll see any of that. Yeah, it seems like John and Sansa would both want to recognize, you know, that service, talk about, the, you know, mention the Reeds as stout friends of House Stark. Yeah, I would have loved to see but... a scene with Mira and Sansa or, and John, you know, whatever, just for Mira to have stuck around long enough for us to have seen someone else talk to her because you would think that Sansa would want more information. Bran hasn't been very forthcoming. Right. And Mira what knows a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I wish we got that scene. I hadn't even considered a Mira Sansa scene and now I'm I'm sad we didn't get it. <laughs> so the Littlefinger stuff is is funny because it's tricky in that we've been twice gotten hyped because of something that happened in the trailers and both times it was the most mundane possibility. The Liana statue conversation turned out to be pretty, you know, pretty uh, mundane. Same with this whole dagger thing. Just, hey, here's the dagger. You know, it wasn't a murder or a stabbing or a plot. It was just, here's the dagger. But 
when Bran gives it to Arya, that actually has a huge ripple effect on what it means to me and, and maybe some of you guys as well about the books. First of all, hat tip to Motels on the Moon for... Oh wait, is that Motels on the Moon or Motels on Mars? Damn it, I got I got them mixed up. Any in any any case, that's who deserves credit in my in my mind for first pointing me towards this theory, which is the cat's paw dagger is the stand-in for Dark Sister from the books, and this makes so much sense because of where Dark Sister is likely to be, which is Blood Raven's cave. Now, so that would be how Bran has access to it. Also, Dark Sister, the name of it, has always screamed Arya since the first time that sword's name appeared which by the way is not in anywhere in the main five books but blood raven undoubtedly had it and whether or not he took it to the wall with him is is a mystery but it would certainly fit and it's one of the most popular uh and most likely possibilities so this is really brilliantly fits in there as far as a parallel instead of Littlefinger giving it to bran to give to Arya, bran just gets dark sister from blood raven in the cave and gives it to Arya. it's the same difference or there's another intermediary sure sure bottom line is she's armed with valyrian steel that's what really i think matters here that's the part that really is the bottom line it's also by the way sideways confirmation or at least evidence that bran will leave the cave in the books as well he can't give dark sister to Arya if he's stuck in the cave in the north some people think maybe Mira will get Dark Sister instead, which is possible it for sure. It could be both, because Mira could bring it out of the cave. Bran could stay in the cave. Mira could leave the cave with Dark Sister and give it to Arya. So it could be, you know, it's not really a confirmation, but it does point to it, I think. Or Mira could die, like we were theorizing yeah. earlier, and that could be why she doesn't get Dark Sister. So, eh, or that's another way it could be both. Like, she could die wielding it, and then it could be given to Arya later. So a lot of people want us to talk about whether this, is, this, this fight with Brienne is foreshadowing for her fighting a White Walker, or, as Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroot suggests, actually killing the Night King himself. <laughs> Sneaking up on him, using all her, you know, sneaky assassin skills. Maybe even the Night King wouldn't see her coming. So, yeah. I mean, there's no way to predict that for sure. I don't think there's any specific evidence that, that, that points to, yes, Arya's going to kill Night King. But I think it's a good theory. It's, it's on the table. <laughs> well, well, she's done all this training, you know. What, what's... Where's it? Where's it leading? Where, yeah. Where's all of this training? What? So she swaps a few faces on the way home. There's got to be a, a, a more of an end game eventuality for Arya with with the training she's received, right, on a storytelling level. So I think it's a, a good call. One thing that I thought was particularly notable, and we're going to pull up a little image slideshow, two images, is that Arya, when she gets into this fight with Brienne that she's fighting just like in her training sessions with Sirio Farrell, you can see here on the screen, her, the same grin, Sirio's even smiling a little bit too, and then Arya and Brienne fighting, they're both enjoying the the fun of the battle of the duel and happy to, I mean, I think in this case, Brienne is just really proud of her and, and all that. But yeah. Arya is also happy to get a chance to, you know, exercise her abilities a little bit. Yeah, just to be powerful. You have I mean, to like have a worthy opponent yeah. and all of these things. Like if you're really fast at running, you a lot of people who are really fast at running enjoy running. Or if you're like really good at you know, like playing an instrument, you play that instrument. It's the same thing. She's really good at fighting and she loves showing off that she could beat someone larger than her, you know. This is mirrored even by, in both of those scenes, someone is watching her, Ned in the first case and Sansa in the second case, and looking a little unnerved by how good Arya is at this or how, or the significance that this has for how she might, you know, die doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some comments on the realism of this scene. A lot of armchair uh, opinions came out about this scene, including some of my own, but... 
You got to go to the experts. A lot of this scene is counterintuitive. So there's a, a gentleman by the name of Scala Gladiatoria. That's a YouTuber, and he is a swordsman expert. He is an expert on swords and sword fighting. And he had a few critical comments about this scene, but it's not what most people said. First of all, Arya blocking Brienne with sweeping parries is completely not only reasonable and rational, but it is exactly how it would be done. Uh, Brienne's longsword is blunted. You can tell by the tip. That's a crucial thing. Another important thing is that a longsword, like Brienne is wielding, it's also potentially a bastard sword given the length of the hilt, is only about three pounds. It's not really that heavy. Brienne's weight behind it adds a lot of power to it. But that's why a lot of people are saying, oh, she would have just chopped right through Arya's little sword. No, that's complete nonsense. She would not have chopped through Arya's sword. That is still a piece of steel. You do not chop through steel with a blunted sword, no matter just about how, how strong you are, especially considering those were not direct strikes to the sword. They were swept aside. The unrealistic part is Arya cutting Brienne and acting like that matters. In a real fight, Brienne would just let Arya stab her with a sword because it wouldn't be enough to, to, to cut her armor. Maybe with a piercing shot. That is a piercing sword. It has no edge whatsoever. So she uh, wouldn't be able to do that. We saw that with Sandor when Sandor kind of ignored her poking at her and just swatted her in the head. But this isn't a real fight. They're dueling. And so when Brienne, so when Arya taps her on the hip, in reality, that would not have been a, a, any... Uh, Brienne could have ignored that if it happened in real life. Mm -hmm. But they're, it's like a game. It's like, oh, I hit you first. It's like tag, sword tag. So anyway, so this is why it pays to listen to the experts. Because if you counter, if you look at that scene with, you know, not knowing a lot about swordsmanship, counterintuitively, be like, oh, this is unrealistic. But take it from the expert. The unrealistic parts were not what most people thought. And, most, and, the, and the realistic parts, or the unrealistic parts were actually pretty realistic. So... Anyway, that's my spiel there. Uh, Yuck Boy, you had a take on the, the moves that we saw here. There was, there was a lot to be said. Yeah, just to kind of echo what Ash was saying, I think she started saying something, but I think there's, there's more to it that I saw in Vanity, Vanity Fair. Not only were some of the moves and positions they ended up very reminiscent, you know, purposefully of the serial dueling, but uh, there's a bit where Arya goes for the heart, which mm -hmm. she learnt off the hound. And there's a bit where she does a, a kind of kick, a kick flip, I think it's called, a flip off the floor anyway. And we saw her learning that off the waif. So you've got the three stages of her, her teachings there, the serial and then the hound and then, and, and then the house of the black and white. And, you know, her, her new skills are there, are there to see. I thought it was really smart. That, came, that observation was in Vanity Fair. Super chat from Craig Lewis. Arya has the training. She has the dagger. Bran knows the historical owner of the dagger and its importance. She will face the Night King. Cool, Craig. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. It may very well be leading up to that. Like, Night King is probably an incredible fighter, and maybe it takes someone like Arya to be able to handle him. So, Ashea's slideshow was pretty sweet. Um, I guess we've gotten through a lot we've of it. we got another one. We've got another one. we got the second slideshow. Yeah, we've got, uh, we mentioned how Sansa watching was like Ned watching Arya fight uh, Sirio, but it was also reminiscent of Ned and Kat standing up there watching Bran, you know, shooting the bow back in season one in the... In this scene, Sansa and Littlefinger are up there, which I don't think of... any of us wants to think of them like Ned and Kat. I was but... about to say, that's offensive. <laughs> Only Littlefinger does. <laughs> <laughs> but it definitely makes you think of it. <laughs> yeah. Littlefinger's happy with the comparison. <laughs> He's like, this is exactly where I want to be. Yes, me, the father of the Stark family. This is perfect. <laughs> but whereas Catelyn is, looks pretty happy there, Sansa does not look very thrilled in this scene. Yeah. 
Hat tip to Purple She-Wolf for noticing the parallel to Ned getting uncomfortable. Not in this scene, but when... I think it's yeah. the end of episode three, season one. Yeah, it's, when, the episode, it's episode, episode three. It's the image I had a minute ago. Oh, okay, cool. When, when Ned walks in and he's hearing the sound of sword fighting in his head, it reminds him of battle and, and pain and suffering. And, and he starts to get uncomfortable, even though at first he's smiling when he sees uh, Arya and Syria training. So I have a question to pose for all of us, which is, why do we think Sansa is uncomfortable here? I, I, I think it's mixed reasons, really. It's not just one... But for me, my immediate thoughts were that seeing how badass and into it Arya was would be unnerving and disturbing and remind Sansa of what Arya has been through. And I also thought immediately, as much as I didn't want to think about it, that Brienne's vow being to both of them might have actually worried Sansa a little bit, sowing some seeds of conflict. I don't think it's going that way. I hope it's not that way. But when Arya says, you swore to serve both my mother's daughters, right? Sansa does get a little bit shifty-eyed and look over at Littlefinger, but I'm not sure if that's because she feels uncomfortable about it or if be- if that's because she's playing Littlefinger in some way. Mm. I think that could be uh, sort of ammunition for him to try to play them against each other in the same way he's done with Sansa and Jon. So, I, you know, now he's got something that he can try to work that way and um i don't think it'll work but it's like we've said about sansa and john we might see a little hint of it and then ultimately it'll probably bite him in the ass and of course i see some people suggesting maybe it's just because she's thinking oh come on (laughs) older brother back from the dead battled the dead messiah to a tribe of people little brother is an all-seeing wizard type (laughs) little sister an unstoppable fighter and you know sansa you know, has to suffer through being a prisoner and be raped and all this. So, yeah, maybe there's just some, ah, <laughs> why didn't I get special powers or something, you know? <laughs> and that's not even, like, you know, whiny. It's, it is kind of like, what the hell? <laughs> why is everyone so powerful? <laughs> when Arya came back, it's probably the most that Sansa would have ever cared for Arya because you know they didn't get along. And now she's got her back and she see she sees straight away she's, you know, fighting like a little psycho in the in the yard with someone <laughs> three times her size kind of thing. You know, that, that's how would you feel if your sibling was doing that? Uh, there was one clarification here from Matt Shackman in an interview that Kim Renfro did, who we met at Con of Thrones, great, great interview, where he said that he thinks there's stages to this interaction. And at first, Sansa thinks that Arya's kidding in the crypts, and then she gets to the tree. Bran confirms this idea that she has a list, but Sansa still doesn't really know what she's done with this list or really understand her abilities. And then Arya's out there with Brienne, who's Sansa's protector, her bodyguard, the person she's relying on to keep her safe in this world. And all of a sudden, her tiny little sister is fighting Brienne to a draw at the end with a sword and knife to each other's throats. And so it causes her to quickly redefine her relationship with Arya and to wonder who exactly her little sister has become. And so he didn't point to any conflict there, more just that she's coming to terms with who who, with who Arya is. Yeah, it definitely wasn't expected. It was... Whoa. <laughs> Similar but different to Bran, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so Arya stares at Littlefinger, you know, when she sees them looking down. And Littlefinger looks a little, he like tries to nod and smile and Arya just keeps staring. And I wondered, we had some people that caught that Arya was in that scene with Tywin and Baelish back in season two, episode six, which I rewatched. Uh, since Monday as well. 
And it's not particularly damning for Peter. He just, he's certainly like, if you remember that scene, he's like trying to get a look at Artie because he kind of recognizes her. And on Monday, we said that he, Aiden Gillen believes his character recognized Arya. He doesn't know for sure that it's been written that way. So that's clarification from Monday. We said that he knows, but it's it's just Aiden Gillen's interpretation of his character. He thinks he recognizes Arya from there, but the, it's not actually confirmed by the showrunners or the writers, so we'll have to hold off on that. In that conversation between Tywin and Peter Baelish, it's when Baelish is saying is trying to push for the Tyrell alliance, and he's trying to argue that they should Tywin should consider marrying the Tyrells even though they're traitors. And he said, after you marry the deal, after you marry the Tyrells, you can punish them later after you've dealt with Rob Stark and Stannis. So it's not, it's not particularly damning, but, you know, it's not good either. <laughs> what do you think, uh, Lady Gwen, about the stare? I think this is the sort of the thing I was referring to earlier about telegraphing this, you know, you know, the Starks coming together and taking him down. I think we're witnessing the downward slope of, of Peter Baelish's arc. He, he's... We've said it several times throughout this episode. He's out of his depth. He's kind of in the wrong place. He's, he's Things aren't going the way they usually go for him. And given the pacing of this season, where things are happening really quickly, um, I would expect his downward slope to be pretty rapid. Yeah, I think so too, because it is, but you're right, things are moving really fast. It's confusing to me, though. I mean, there's got there's, there's a few things they need to address. I know, obviously, Bronzion Royce is there to take over if Littlefinger dies, and that's something we point to a lot. But it politically, it's a little confusing because he's sworn to the king in the north. They can't just off him for what he's done in the past. It's not it's, that maybe isn't a good enough reason, given the current politics and given that they need the veil and they're not they can't. Certainly at this point, they can't be sure that if Littlefinger is off, that the veil will stick with them. I think we all think that because we know Jan Royce's character and we kind of expect it. But that doesn't mean John and Sansa know that or that they could have confidence in that. So I think there's still maybe the show will just kind of not worry about that too much. But I think ideally that would be addressed. Yoke Boy, you had some thoughts as well. Um, just echoing what you said about the, the, the reverse Ned of the situation. I, I really like that. I think that. He's come up north and his tricks don't work, don't work up here. <laughs> and um, I, I think it'd be great if, if, the, if the, the reunification of the Starks was sealed with the downfall of Baelish, the guy who, who did their father over. Wouldn't that be great? I just can't think of a better story than that. But I think it, it, it'd be great to see all three of them, you know, chip in. I, I've always said Sansa really should be part of the architecture of his downfall, but it'd be great if the other, t- you know, it's a bonus if the other two come along and help out. Who, who's going to get the kill? I don't know. But, you know, I, re- I certainly hope Sansa has a moment of power over him. Yep, we'll just have to keep on waiting. Littlefinger mm-hmm. is still hanging on for now. <laughs> okay, yeah, Dragonstone. Yeah, first we have this scene with Danny and Missande chatting about Grey Worm, and then, most notably to me, they then meet with John, who is pretty intimately acquainted with the axe that they were talking about, and in a cave, too. And maybe it's just me, but all these bend-the-knee and kneeling comments just make me feel like I have a really dirty mind, because I hear innuendo every single time. Every time. So... 
<laughs> Ash, I think I have a dirty mind too, and all through we're going to talk about the cave scene later. But I thought there was loads of innuendo there too. It's, it's just everywhere. Maybe it's just me and you. Yeah. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> uh, no, Lady Gwyn? no, no. We all oh, thought good. the same thing. As soon as he went into that cave, we all thought the same thing. But he kept his vows this time. Yeah, not those vows. The ones to the vows to the people. Yeah, of for the now, North he's only staring at her, her so, uh, good heart and not touching her. Her, her good heart. <laughs> but really, this is really as much as people hate it. Or so, I'm not everyone hates it. Some people hate. It, some people are fine with it. Some people just kind of resign to it. The way they're going to probably get around this whole "I'm not bending the knee" thing is well, what's going to unite them without him bending the knee? A marriage. Uh, okay. Sorry, guys. If you don't like that idea, it just makes so much sense. I, I honestly thought that that she was going to propose that. She turned around and said, you know what? We'll seal the deal. And I was like, oh, my God. And she's like, if you're king. I know. I mean, given the, the pacing that we talked about, I thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know? And then there was a, a shot as they walk out, and they're, it almost looked like they were holding hands. And I've yeah. seen other people comment on that. I, I think mm-hmm. it was purposeful camera shot. Um, and I just yeah. thought, yeah. oh boy, <laughs> they did it off. They did it off camera. I noticed that too. And then I looked closely, and I was like, okay, they're not. Their hands just looked like that. But there was that moment, obviously, where they're all close, and he grabs her arm to direct <laughs> her. Like that wasn't necessary, John. <laughs> but they're they're trying to build it. They even yeah. said in the behind the scenes and the inside the episode, David and Dan were like, they're in this close, confined space. This heat is building. He reaches over and moves her arm to move where the torches. That was yeah. little touches like that. I mean, uh, I meant that both ways. A little touch, as in a little touch writing wise, and an actual oh, yeah. physical little touch but uh yeah so that's that's pretty cool it's, it seems like it's heading that way lml says that hey you got to kneel to propose eh, i don't is that traditional in westeros uh, yeah but no, I, I like know. i like the joke <laughs> anyway it's, it's true yeah. okay so should so, we talk about the drawings yeah we should uh you, have some, you can start us off with these, yeah cool yeah so again folks we're going to have a special episode on this with lml we're planning on that we just started talking about it literally like 15 minutes before going live so understandably we haven't come up with many details yet <laughs> but there's a lot to say about this we picked a ton of these images Shay grabbed not just ones from this cave but from past seasons so you guys are in for a treat well, more images than usual this time we get a lot of we did, she, she did a lot of extra research and pulling these things out so thanks for that um this, this, a lot of this feels like the pact doesn't it this general conversation of what's happening um the pact is described a little differently in terms of why they were getting together or some of the details, but it fit, a lot of the high points really fit and they fit so well that it's hard to ignore. So I think maybe this is, if something like this scene happens, it might happen on the Isle of Faces in the books, or maybe if there's carvings like this, that's where they'll be. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting subject. I would uh, preface it by saying, I think I really do think that it more has significance in real world you know, symbolism than it does in world like i don't really think that these mean the isle of faces or the pact i would love it to be the case but and there's evidence for it certainly but i'm down on the idea but i think they do have great significance other than that i wanted to first mention that uh the carvings by the way would be on dragonstone i think this is quite brilliant actually because that's where people would have to go to find dragonglass they would just have to go there. That's why they wouldn't be on the Isle of Faces or some other place. They would be there um, basically leading the way, trying to teach them, not doing a great job. wasn't super clear, but it helped. It helped. <laughs> uh, so spiral shapes are known historically, you know, just 
in real life and in world. We've seen them before in Game of Thrones. Uh, we've seen this image of the godswood with a spiral. We've seen the bodies arranged in the kind of phi Greek symbol, um, like you can see here on the screen now. We've seen it like that. Um, we don't know what they mean, but they certainly were mirrored again in this episode. We saw them back in uh, The Fist of the First Men when Mance and John found... Um, the bodies that the White Walkers had left there. So they, they've repeated the spiral more than this five symbol. But you see it there. There's this, there's the first men, there's the spiral and the five symbol. Then there's that little circle with a circle in it, which is what some people are theorizing is either an eclipse or is the, you know, Isle of Faces or something like that. I'm not sure. But what we do know is that spirals are, you know, associated with and reminiscent of the Fibonacci spiral, you know, the golden ratio, and which is found, you know, in nature. Uh, anyway, spirals are found throughout megalithic art, you know, very ancient art, most notably in places like Ireland and Latin America, but they've been found on every continent other than Antarctica. They're an easy thing to draw, and they're found so naturally in nature. They are obviously found naturally so often in nature that they naturally are associated with nature. <laughs> and I just was really excited to write that. But I also wanted to point out just a little thing I noted, which was that... Um, Dark Sansa's chain. You remember when she's in all black and she's got that black chain? It looks a lot like that same five symbol that uh, was the body that the body shapes were in yeah. episode one. I don't think that's on purpose, but it just cracked me up that she had this symbol of death basically there. But that same symbol, the five symbol, which is the you know again, it's like it's like a staff between you know a circle that basically stands for the golden ratio which is tied to the fibonacci spiral so those symbols are tied together in real life i think that dnd were just like let's choose these you know real world significant symbols yeah. and i don't think they really do have symbols uh in the books i mean it's not in the books at all so i don't think they're taking anything from it no i think yeah i agree i don't think there's, there's no hints of of these kind of symbols yet anyway and yeah. that I think this will be expressed in a different way in the books. I think there'll be a different medium rather than carvings or runes or something that's very visual. It might be something else that George gives us, something that gets us to the same point about their origin, something that explains it, but rather than yeah. visually, he'll explain it in a different way. Yeah, like, for instance, a brand, you know, Werewood vision exactly. that you could see it, which would be hard for them to maybe film. It's more expensive than some carvings. Yeah, and... The carvings are just awesome, too. It's just a nice touch, you know, showing that ancient bit. We love, obviously, we here, we love anything from history. And this is about as ancient as history can get. Usually, ancient history doesn't actually include direct evidence because it's, it's all, here's nothing's written down. There's, it's just all hearsay. It's just myths and legends brought forward from the past. So, direct evidence is, is a lot cooler. David and Dan did say in behind the episode that, this, that these symbols come from the children of the forest. It's their symbols. Yeah. And thus, the children, or thus, the walkers associate these symbols with their own creation. So that's really deep and cool. That's interesting, isn't it? It's it's like a mother symbol to them because, you know, that's their birth. They're not born, so to speak. So it's almost like a mother symbol. It's Yeah, I was going to reiterate what, what Ash said. There's no evidence of the spirals in the books. Pers personally speaking, you know, I don't like to look for too much meaning in these things because maybe the meaning is that it's in your imagination, you know? 
You could spend a lot of time <laughs> driving yourself crazy over the spirals. You could be you could be on a downward spiral. The way the show, does, the way the show sometimes often leaves things open or unanswered gives us gives us a lot of room for these imaginations too. <laughs> Real quick, we got a super chat from Meredith Glassberg, and she says the Theta shows up in Martin's other works, which is a great catch. I will say this is a slightly different symbol than that. Uh, Theta looks a little different, but I think the point remains that it's reminiscent of his sort of work. Yeah, I think I still yeah. think it's a good point, but it, I, I do think that that symbol is different from the one we're seeing because Theta has the eye in the middle and it doesn't cross over to the circle part. Anyways, Yuck boy, you had some more on this scene. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I, I really love this the, this cave scene. I just thought, it, okay, there was this romantic stuff. Maybe maybe I'm a romantic. I don't know. I, I kind of like that the Dan and uh, Danny and John thing, but the the this is a is a kind of plot device to show Danny, you know, hey, this is your enemy. These things have been around. They've they've kind of haunted previous generations. Doing it, you know, in this cave environment, I thought it was really original. I don't know if it's something they got from George, but you know, I hope so because it's an awesome part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so shall we move on a little bit, talking a little more about Danny and John? Yeah, okay. yeah. We have a few scenes uh, at Dragonstone with them. And one of them, I thought it was a great line where John, uh, where, where Danny says to John, isn't their survival more important than your pride? Two things. One, John, John could have just said the exact same thing to Danny. Like it's her pride just as much as his one. But also that's what John said to Mance. Yep, yep. <laughs> And this, Joe Buckley points out that this is leading towards her house of the Undying Vision. She's going to keep being this stubborn until she's inches from the Iron Throne. And then maybe, like Stannis, she'll realize that, she, you know, she's got to save the kingdom to win the throne, not the other way around. It may very, looking a lot like that sort of parallel, even right down to being at Dragonstone, <laughs> you know. So I think that's a, a really good fit. Danny's getting a little frustrated because of the news she gets about Castle Rock and Tyrion's, you know, advice not going so well. <laughs> and she brings up maybe blaming him for being too soft on his family, which is going to come up later, especially with maybe Jamie being in captivity. And John and Danny both, John, first of all, John tells Danny why people follow her. He reminds her that she's done the impossible and that people think that maybe she can do continue to do the impossible and that that is why people follow her. It's not because of her birthright. It's not because of I was born to rule, you know. And both of them get this experience from the other side. John and Davos are talking to Missande and Missande is like, yeah, She's the best, Missandei and the Dothraki are fantastic salesmen for why Danny is awesome. Because they are living it. They're like, we've experienced, she's a worthy leader. And let me tell you why. Because she'll let us leave. She'll do this. She's that. Blah, blah, blah. She's not what you think she is. And I think that Danny is sort of learning the same thing. She doesn't have John's people to talk to. But Davos was kind of saying those same things about John. And so maybe Danny needs to hear that from other people. Like Tyrion. I mean, Tyrion has done some of that. But there's... There's too many people. She hasn't maybe heard it from enough people yet. So, Missandei, John, and Davos got some humor in here, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we got this one callback, this recurring joke that I think mm -hmm. is my favorite in the whole show, probably. <laughs> uh, it's fewer. Uh, from season two, originally, when Stannis corrects Davos, and then from season five, when Stannis just kind of mutters it to himself. No one really listens to him say it at all. 
<laughs> uh, uh, we got a super chat real quick from Craig Lewis. Thanks, John, Craig. Yeah, thank you. John took Danny by the forearm. That implies intimacy. A date brushing lint off your shoulder. Besides, who gets away with touching the queen? <laughs> no, definitely. It was definitely notable, I think. And I, I think that's another great point that who gets away with touching the queen, that it was even more forward than we were thinking. Yeah. So moving on, the Davos seems to have an interest in Missande, and a lot of people have been joking about it being romantic or him flirting, and I find that funny because he has a wife that we never see, but personally, I think it's more in the vein of his fondness for Shireen, which makes these interactions actually really sad to me. Yeah. And someone <laughs> in the chat uh, a while ago, not today, mentioned the idea that maybe Davos had all along wished that he had a daughter because he had all sons, and so that's maybe also part of why he had connected with Shireen in the first place and with Masande, and even he was smiling at little Liana Mormont and all that so I think he just has a soft spot for, for children and little girls in particular but I don't think that he's flirting necessarily that actually might play out better in the books if it goes at all like this because Masande is actually a child <laughs> in the books yeah, where she's kind of an adult here I mean she's a young she's young yeah. nowhere near Davos's age but Masande book Masande is like 11 now yeah, that's you a know. great point. I didn't even consider that. that that's, that's awesome. I wonder if that'll right. go that way. We can hope. Lady Gwyn <laughs> had some thoughts, though. Yeah, well, I, I thought very much along the lines of what you were saying, um, and also with the fact that they're on Dragonstone. He lived there. That's where he's, his friendship with Shireen was formed. Uh, so he's probably feeling a lot of... He's got a lot of feels. Yeah. I'm sure there's nostalgia and hmm. all kinds of stuff yeah. going on. So. Another notable thing I think in this little sequence was Masande's knowledge or lack of knowledge about bastards. Personally, I feel like she should know what bastards are, given her knowledge and her position. So I'm choosing for myself just to believe that she wanted to see John's reaction, that she yeah. was pretending she didn't know. I'm with you. I think she's yeah. humoring them and just yeah. playing nice and yeah. Yeah. I thought uh, Davos' reaction was hilarious. <laughs> Liberating. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that struck me as so funny. I do think that this could be an interesting setup or maybe commentary if the show just shows us John as Rhaegar's bastard, which of course is yes. hotly debated in book canon, but I really doubt the show is going to be that subtle. They will not have time for starters. Um, so they're just going to go with the s straight up, you know, John's a royal bastard. Uh, so they've introduced this theme that bastardy there's, doesn't mean anything, uh, which, given the Gendry thread that we're going to be talking about, is another interest. You know, it's just another interesting connection with that theme, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to. I'm glad you mentioned Gendry because I want to throw that out there too. If he, you know, no matter what capacity he shows up again, he is. A similar status to John in terms of a bastard son of a king and a king that has no other descendants. So that's the whole bringing up this bastard commentary in general, I think, is some interesting foreshadowing that could have multiple applications. How about Davos talking to D Danny and John? I already mentioned the good heart comment. Yeah, but... yeah. But King Snow. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound right. King John. <laughs> so, that's so good. They've really done a great job of mixing in humor with all these really meaningful scenes on Dragonstone. It's, uh, it's, it's been very good. I'm real happy with it. Okay, so Theon's return is next on the docket. And it's certainly notable that when Jon moves to grab him, Theon doesn't bat an eye. He's like, yeah, I deserve it. You know, he doesn't fight back at all. And 
this is tricky because trying to figure out how to rectify this story with the books. I think one of the main things that's going on with the Greyjoy story in the books is the story of Torgon the Latecomer, who was, there's legal precedent in the Iron Islands for uh, someone who had a claim to the throne that wasn't there for the king's move. And that is something that Yara, Asha, thinks about a lot. And she's thinking of Theon, obviously, because she was there at the King's Moot, but Theon wasn't. So it's pretty widely believed that Theon or his bastard child will maybe rule the Iron Islands when it's all said and done. And that means Theon has to survive if if the book's going to do, or if the show's going to go that same route, which maybe they don't need Yara, which has led us to worry about her. But as long as she's still alive, there's a chance. And it seems pretty clear that this is what Theon's arc is going to be. He's going to maybe be the guy to go after Euron, or at least to rescue Yara from Euron. Um, whether it works or not, I don't know. But it's interesting because both Yara and Theon are in captivity at Stannis's hands at the point we are in the books. And so it's kind of hard to see how they get from captivity with Stannis to working for Danny with Yara being a captive of Euron. I mean, that, it's, it's hard to unpack all that and see how it relates, but I think a lot of it will, at least some of the high points. They also kind of covered this a little br- briefly before, but they talked about how Danny does still have plenty of ships, and, and that actually does make sense. She hasn't sent her Dothraki anywhere until now, and, well, that's where all the ships were. Most of the ships that came over were hauling Dothraki, and most of those didn't get used at any other point. They weren't with the Ironborn, they weren't with hauling the Unsullied, so that actually works. So I think for now, Theon, we're just kind of waiting. We don't know what's yeah. going on yet. but I it, do think it's notable that we keep seeing Pike in the opening credits. I think yeah. it could just be to remind us of this Greyjoy presence on, on the main stage. But it also makes me wonder if we're going to see it eventually. I think it's possible, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you guys have any uh, takes on that? What, did you th- what, did you, what was your reaction, your general reaction to Theon showing up there? Well, pretty much, I mean, you know, John's reaction, I think, was pretty much what I expected. I'm um, still debating where I think Theon's arc is going to go, but I I do like the idea that in the show, anyways, that he might lead the a raid on Pike, as like Yara went um, to the Dreadfort trying to rescue Theon, which also doesn't happen in the books. Euron was last seen at Casterly Rock, which is really just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the Iron Islands, so. That could be where he's broader. Yeah, maybe he'll swing by on the way home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drop Yara off and then go somewhere else, and that's the chance to... Hmm. That's Theon's chance, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've got to say that Alfie Allen was uh, has re- done Theon so well. I mean, all through the Reek days, he was really good, and he's still nailing it. It was such a small part um, on Sunday's episode, but I, I really got the sense of who Theon was there with his acting. So it looks like we have well over 700 people watching right now. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate the turnout. And uh, we're still pretty far from the 6K goal. Uh, 6K, if we get 6,000 Hey, if we get 1,000, Sean said he would record himself dancing. <laughs> if we get 6,000, so, we will do a 24-hour live stream. Yes. We're still pretty far from that. That's why we said it's so high, because, damn, that will be hard. But we'll do it. If y'all get us there, we'll do it. <laughs> So let's let's take care of some mid-roll stuff now that we're roughly halfway through. We, as usual, we will go beyond two hours to continue answering questions, but not all those questions will make the final cut of the podcast. So keep that in mind. Um, first of all, I want to give a shout out to our Ironborn captains on Patreon. And that includes 
or rather that begins with Kathleen the Ruthless, Captain of the Night Terror, Black Manta's Storm Rider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Rebea, Lady of Waves, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat, Tusk Shield, Breaker Captain of Kraken's Fury, Oisin the Wanderer, Captain of Naga's Living Flame, Sir Selvus Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of Trident of the North, Sir Chucklaws, Captain of the Drummond Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil, Dean Crow's Eye of Hal Seaworth, Captain of Silence, Mad Zack, Captain of the Red Wake, and Heron Burntbeard, Captain of Smoking Narwhal. What's that narwhal smoking? <laughs> nah. We also shout out to our Blood Rider Kohokoe called Sunpiercer, who sent a grayscale infected arrow at Galadon Longscar, who is slowly suffering from that. Also, a shout out to John of Knoxville, Prince of Sunsphere, <laughs> wielder of the twin Valyrian steel daggers, Viper's Fangs. Now, this is cool. Some of this, this may have slid under the radar, but the Mystery Night graphic novel is out. Yes, now, with art by Mike Miller. And, of course, we've had the first two in the series out in graphic novel form for quite a few years. But the Mystery Night just came out, you know, on the 8th yesterday. So... Definitely go check that out. You can get it on Kindle format or you can order it on our website, hardcover, whatever you prefer. I have it on digital version. Definitely hardcover. Seeing it in front of you is better. I couldn't wait and I just wanted it in front of me. And so I've been tweeting little screen caps from it that I think are funny because sometimes they're just hilarious. The artwork really is. Yeah. And we can see Bloodraven and, yeah. and all these other guys and their full battle gear and everything. Just really cool. Just Seeing some of these characters come to life, even in animated version, is awesome. Especially when there's little of them elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I highly recommend you can get that. You can, you can uh, we should have a link to that up on our website shortly. It's, I don't think it's there yet, but not long after this episode is, is out, we'll have mm -hmm. a link for that. And you go to historyofwesteros.com and you should be able to find that. Doesn't, doesn't Blood Raven look amazing in the graphic novel? Yeah, yeah, he does. He looks great. I love his eye patch that they gave him. He looks very kind of slick and, you know, on the <laughs> ball and just what you'd expect. I also want to point out that, uh, that uh, Glendon Ball, Fireball's bastard, uh, looks really awful. I mean, not awful in a good way. He just looks just no, no one would want to follow him and everyone would make fun of him based on how he looks. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's going to join the Aegon's Kingsguard. <laughs> dunk. That's his place. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, check that out. Okay, so let's go to the Field of Fire. Uh, they call it the, you know, the Loot Train Attack. Raid, which is maybe not the best name. I prefer the Field of Fire. Well, yeah, I don't know. There's not really much loot there right then. Yeah, the loot mostly got away. <laughs> the Food Train, maybe they should call it. <laughs> <laughs> so the scene kind of starts, or they set the stage with Bra Bron being unhappy with, you know, the fact that Lannisters aren't paying their debts. he They owe him a castle. Yep. Jamie does give him a big sack of gold, but then, of course, once the battle gets going, Bronn has to leave his money, which was a brilliant moment where in just a split second, in a, a moment, you know, he makes the decision that he can't go for the gold, because I mean, which is smart, but I think also has maybe has greater meaning for him. But it shows that ultimately, I think that Bronn is going to survive. He's saving himself there as much as we'll talk about whether people should have died or, you know, could have died in this scene. I think that it shows that he's looking out for his himself and his neck right there. Absolutely. But he needs more, uh, he needs more loot from this because <laughs> if Jamie were to die there, who would give Braun his just due? No one. He would have been, you know, screwed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So then we have a conversation with Dickon, Jamie, and Bronn, and there's been a lot of jokes about, hopefully, you know, Bronn laughs the name Dickon. 
Dickon probably shouldn't go anywhere near Theon or Grey Worm or Varys. They'll just his name, his very name, is mocking them because they're all dick off, <laughs> and oh, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> the, there's a there's a character called Dickon Manwoody in the in the books. <laughs> yep, yes, there sure is. is. Thanks for that, George. Yeah, probably the best <laughs> name in the books too. <laughs> so this this scene actually, despite the humor, there was a lot of interesting stuff in it. It had callbacks to season one with Robert's first kill conversation, which we detailed on on Monday. But in general, it just talks about the horrors of battle and particularly civil war. You know, Dickon talking about having to fight his friends is pretty harsh. And then Tyrion lives that, you know, in this scene. Dickon's talking about it, so he lived it. But then we see it firsthand with Tyrion having to see that. And there are, as in, I couldn't find a specific, the first, they don't tell you about the stench thing in, in, uh, in the books. It probably is in there somewhere, but I couldn't find it specifically couched in the same language. But George, of course, talks about the horrors of battle and war all over the place. It's just... It's everywhere. So it's a really, it's a callback to a lot of George's themes about, you know, they go off to war thinking that it's going to be glorious and wonderful. And then there's this, <laughs> you know, well, this is, this is extreme even for war, but still, wow. Hmm. And one thing I want to relate to maybe book, uh, a book, a thing is Randall Tarley's harshness. Cause we already know that it's very likely Randall Tarley will be among the leaders of those who flip to egg on the six in the books is his harshness going to reflect poorly on Aegon's leadership? Or is that going to maybe be a factor? Maybe some of Aegon's commanders. I mean, the Golden Company aren't exactly nice guys, you know. So Aegon the Sixth may be faced with a lot of his army being, you know, a problem for the people, the civilian population. Which Danny will have the same problem too, given all the R'hllor and Dothraki and everything. So I think that could be a big part of the book theme is both these factions have issues with their own soldiers so uh the surprise attack the way they built the sound up was really cool this was certainly one of the things i was talking about at the beginning is one of the things they great things they did with sound and then music so uh and, and lady gwen you noticed something here too before this um built with the dothraki coming it completely ended all sound you know jamie and Bron are talking and there are birds there's background noise and all it just all went silent you could hear the birds stop singing um and it was just very eerie and that's how they knew something was wrong and i interpreted the bird stopping you know as the dragons are well dragon dragon is coming <laughs> yeah dragon not a budget for all three no. <laughs> <laughs> but still probably enough to make all the birds go wow we better yeah. hide from this Yikes. Thing. <laughs> yeah the birds are like no thanks <laughs> that's a heck of a big flying predator <laughs> <laughs> So let me, uh, let's detail a little of the tactics in the battle. Let's do some logistics here. Shea has got an awesome map shot for us. This is, what you're seeing the arrows pointing at are the Blackwater Rush. That's the river that runs alongside King's Landing. That's the same river that Stannis sailed his ships up in as part of his assault on King's Landing. Randall Tarley mentions that this is where they're near. He says, we've got to get the rest of the column over Blackwater Rush by nightfall. So that's pretty clearly an indication of where they are. Now look at how close that is to the shoreline. So it's really not hard to see how Danny could have snuck up on them. Some people are wondering how they could have been caught so off guard. But if you see where the Rose Road is, it's not far from the shore. And Daenerys has a lot better vision than any of Jamie's scouts would have because she can go high up in the air and, and watch from Drogon. And anyone else looking from far away is not going to think, oh, that's a dragon. No, it's going to be so far away, they'll probably just think it's an eagle or some sort of bird or hawk or vulture or something in the sky. They won't be able to tell it's a dragon. As second of all, 
let's pretend that Jamie had scouts out there. How come there was no warning? Well, the Dothraki have faster horses and their guys shoot bows from horseback, whereas the Westerosi do not. So in terms of scout versus scout, it's not even close to a contest. Danny should have a massive advantage in terms of these scouting small encounters because the Lannisters and the Tyrells have nowhere near the talent and training and experience of growing up in the saddle and learning to fight like this. So, uh, Yoke Boy, you had some thoughts on this as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, let's back up. We have a super chat. Let's do okay, that first. I was going to save it for life after, but all right. From Jacob, from Jacob Victor, he said, Just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of both of you guys. Keep up the good work. Quick shout out to Tyrion's version of Gandalf's famous quote, Fly, you fools, instead of flee, you fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. I noticed one. that, yes. Especially with the other Lord of the Rings parallel, well, Hobbit parallels with uh, Bronn and shooting down the dragon and all that. So, <laughs> yep, it's it's cool. Some good homages there. George R. R. Martin, big fan of uh, J.R. Tolkien. He calls mm-hmm. him the, the original, you know, the master. So definitely some homages there. Yeah, speaking of homages, it, you know, it struck, I'm not the only one to notice this, obviously, but, you know, it struck me that this was kind of homage to... You know, the tropes of Western movies, the setting and environs were kind of reminiscent of a, you know, a Western prairie type feel, I thought, mm. with the, you know, the, 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 the dry land and the shrubbery and the, the loot train, as it's called, needing to be derailed kind of thing. <laughs> That's another Western kind of trope before it gets to its destination. There was a standoff and there was also this surprise attack by the Dothraki coming over the hill, which to me reminded me of, uh, you know, a kind of American Indian attack in the in the Western context. So I think the fact that HBO have actually named it the loot train, you know, is very telling of, of the influence of Western movies here. Yeah, definitely. Beforehand, we'd had someone comment on one of our videos saying this is going to be like cowboys and Indians. And then in the behind the scenes uh, look at the loot train attack, they called it cowboys and Indians. So they definitely were thinking of that for sure. More Western, cue more uh, Westworld jokes, Westeros world jokes. Yep. (laughs) But one of the great things about this, in addition to seeing Drogon in action, was seeing the Dothraki in action, actually fighting. And we had this outstanding standing on horses action. Outstanding. uh, Right here with a Dothraki, (laughs) which was really impressive. And the behind the scenes, they talked about, you should just watch it if you hadn't. It's like 14 minutes. But they talked about how they actually did that. They constructed these special saddles for them to put their feet into which made me wonder if Dothraki have some you know interesting tech maybe like that like some special saddles in 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 world or something like that but they, they all really did that which is so impressive so so impressive uh but also the, their screaming was pretty great too yeah the screamers i love that touch it was it added to the tension especially because drogon then added his much bigger louder scream <laughs> to come in. it was like they were the like chorus building up and then he's the soloist you know coming out to <laughs> it's like an orchestra and then he comes out there <laughs> love it yeah i love that one tracking shot of Bronn trying to get to the scorpion and then there's drogon flying above it just follows him you know from from uh in front of Bronn, and it was a really great cinematic moment and how gray and orange and red everything is in that moment it was really stunning yeah it was it was so cool what, what was everyone's favorite moment from the battle do you guys have a favorite moment from the battle or favorite shot or just favorite aspect of it um whoever's ready can go for go first i said mine right there you know, i yeah. would yeah. say the the awesome tracking shot and then Bron getting to the scorpion and him you know just the wind in his hair or, or whatever it was all stunning yeah um i think we'll talk about mine 
in a minute or two, but I think okay. um, that this Jamie Jamie with the uh, with the lance at the end I mm. thought was a, just a great shot. Mm. Okay, I, I think mine. I, I do. I, I like. Uh, I like all of yours. Mine's are kind of like Ashes. I like Bron and the Scorpion when he's aiming, and it really mm. reminded me of Jaws. You know, when mm. he's waiting mm-hmm. for things, and he's kind of got one shot left, and he's got to do it, and you know, bam. Yeah, I thought that was really good. I was. Re- I was actually. I loved it so much. I was on Bron's side, and I really yeah. wanted Drogon to die so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. said that on Twitter and everybody hated me for it. <laughs> I saw your tweet about that. That was funny. In real life, I'm down on dragons for sure. Like dragons shouldn't exist. They're just nuclear weapons. They're, we shouldn't have them. But uh, I didn't want Drogon to die in that moment in particular as much as I wanted. I was happy Braun got a shot in. That's all he really needed to say he shot a dragon down. That's like pretty impressive. But uh, moving on from that, uh, there was a, another quote from this interview that Kim Renfro did with Matt Shackman where they cited, uh, Shackman incited Apocalypse Now as inspiration for this sequence and that it has this tremendous battle between guys in a helicopter and mm. villagers down below and it shifts perspectives and it's all about the horrors of war. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was communicated really well. I thought that was a, a great homage inspiration that they used. There was a great comment in the chat just now. Someone says, who did it better with pinning an opponent to the wall? Was it Braun spearing that Dothraki or a Grey Worm spearing that Lannister at Castle Rock? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> decide amongst yourselves. It's a tough call. <laughs> Grey Worm required more of his own strength, you know. But Braun was, was a little trickier, a little sneakier. <laughs> so we've got um, a really hilarious... Uh, thing that Ashea has prepared for us here. Yes, I was doing my screen capping as I do uh, for each of these and for other things. And uh, I was going through it backwards and I was struck by what a nice creature Drogon is to clean up for everyone here. Like, I mean, it's Suck pretty magical, right? He just sucks it all up. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Inhale I think you give him a bad rep. <laughs> I bet you feel bad. I bet you're eating your words now, Yoke Boy. You can't see it, but you'll see later that Trogon is, is doing a fine job. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking anyway, about. You that's enough of that. We weren't watching the same battle, apparently. Uh, Does Bronn pull out the spear from Drogon when you put it in River? <laughs> yes, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Bronn is a dragon doctor. Uh, yeah, uh, I know it's silly, but it cracked me up. But uh, a less su- uh, silly shot, I think the most popular shot from the episode was this shot of Drogon from the side burning things, yeah. which I thought Ooh. was stunning. It would have been my favorite shot from the episode, except it drove me crazy that they didn't get all the way across the screen. I wanted Drogon to get all the way across <laughs> it just for my own like OCD, my own persnicketiness. <laughs> I wanted it, but it was stunning. And seeing behind the scenes, seeing how they actually created that and how they actually had these real you know, pyrotechnics, how they had uh, explosions going on and lighting people on fire. I was even more impressed when I rewatched it. Yeah, it's it's harder to complain about the battle after you've watched the mm-hmm. making of because it's you realize just this... the overwhelming scope of effort and a number of different people who are really good at what they do, who have, you know, had careers leading up to this point to show off their expertise. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's harder to criticize things when you see all the work that goes into it. 
I will say there's something that I will still criticize that uh, honestly knocked this down like a solid point for me. Like I, I've tried to re reconcile myself to it, but it really drives me crazy. It's this is a fantasy world with dragons and all that. And Daenerys has ridden Drogon before without a saddle, but this time Drogon fell from the sky and she held on without a saddle, which is just crazy to me. There's other things I can let go of, but that right there, I, I don't know. I, I still just am haunted by the fact that it was the case. My but, answer came up. Yeah. My my explanation for it, which is just something I made up, I, I you know, like, <laughs> who knows? But maybe Drogon's, you know, the little wing flaps, the little neck flaps that he has that <laughs> maybe he, Danny can really wedge her feet deep in there. <laughs> And her hands. Some crevice hands. in there. Yeah, yeah no, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have an answer for that. There is not precedent for this, but there's something that relates to this in the book, specifically from the Dance of the Dragons and the Princess and the Queen, uh, in which there's this scene where Damon and Aemon, one eye, get into uh, an altercation and... Damon doesn't do up his chains and uh Aemon does and it ends up, you know, screwing over Aemon. It means his death ultimately. But still, Damon would have had, I think, a saddle in addition to chains. He just didn't do his chains. Well, here it is from the Princess and the Queen. The young prince kissed his woman and vaulted lightly onto Vagar, taking care to fasten the four short chains between belt and saddle. Damon left his own chains dangling. Caraxes hissed again, filling the air with flame, and Vagar answered with a roar as one, the two dragons leapt into the sky. Yeah. So again, picture, Whoa. right? We already saw one dragon. Like, that must be so much more epic. And like, Damon leaps from one dragon to another. And See and why we stuff. have to do this Dance of the Dragons yeah. podcast between, uh, with, the, you yes. know, with Radio Westeros? Because we got to do stuff like that. That's just so cool. And yeah, again, I'll repeat what I said at the beginning. Imagine, look at that shot of the shots that Shea has shown picture 18 of those things flying around <laughs> just doing oh battle gosh. like and you you can't imagine i can't imagine just i honestly i will say i've seen <laughs> dragons and stuff before but i was never really like team dragon dragons are awesome i want to see more dragons flying around but after this i have more of an idea of how epic it really would be to see the dance of the dragons i had always been down on it i was like it's not worth the waste of the budget to me and i i still kind of feel like that i don't want no one like come after me for that but i'd rather see the budget spent on so many more things than dragons but I, this, yeah, this yeah, convinced yeah. me a little bit yeah and also it's a reminder of how Aegon the conqueror dealt with things you know he didn't want to just burn everyone up either in some cases he kind of had to but it was never his first resort either and that's we're kind of seeing that with danny and how she approached this war at first or at least how our counselors wanted her to approach this war at first and that's why this battle has so many ramifications, even if we don't see anything else like it again. I think we might, but everyone's going to get the message now. Everyone was like us. We all kind of imagine dragon yeah. battles and like, oh, it's going to be something. But, but actually seeing it, even though this is just TV, actually seeing it is like, whoa, this changes our perspective on dragons. Like Ashaya just said, it, it moved the needle for her. Imagine how it moves the needle for Braun or Randall Tarley yeah. or just the average Lannister soldier. I mean, those Lannister soldiers are heroes. They yes. are like incredible. I, it is, I, it is more fantastical than the dragon itself that they would not move. They would keep holding the line there. It was crazy to me, but they did it. Yeah, <laughs> and they just and the way Danny's strategy was, she wasn't targeting them too much. She certainly burned plenty of soldiers, but she was mostly targeting the loot train, which also served to trap them. It was like a wall of fire that the column couldn't, they, they couldn't run away from. They could either run into the Dothraki 
or into the flame wall that Danny created behind her. And that's part of why it's similar to the Field of Fire in a lot of ways is because Aegon burnt started burning the brush fire on either side of the battlefield so that his smaller force couldn't be outflanked by the larger uh, combined strength of the Reach and the Rock. And it was done for, you know, it's done for a different reason here, but, you know, the, the same tactic is there. And speaking of all this destruction, Tyrion is the guy who is most lamenting all this, right? Danny's almost exalting in it. She's, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm powerful. Um, <laughs> She's not up close and personal right away either. Exactly, exactly. Um, so Tyrion has a lot of experience with this. He not only saw men burning and screaming based on his own plans at the Blackwater, but he saw it himself back in the Greyjoy Rebellion when Euron sailed in and burned Lannister fleet, something that Tyrion mentions back in season one when he's jawing with Theon. Um, so, Yoke Boy, what do you think? What do you think about Tyrion? Yeah, on the subject of Tyrion, I, Tyrion's got friends on the other side. Like you said, he's got he's got kind of mixed feelings about things. In this scene, we we saw Dick Tarly and he was talking about you know him having friends on the other side. Really, that was kind of underscoring what was going on for Tyrion. He, he must be really conflicted. Um, Dickon was a stay setter for what Tyrion goes on to witness and. Really, in the story, we do see quite a, a fair amount of people like switching sides and, you know, kind of going native and things like that, which Tyrion must be feeling right now. And you, you think of like Jon Snow go, during the Night's Watch and then he goes over to the Wildlings, brings them south. There's a fair amount of that kind of switching up going on. Yeah, it's really something. I mean, Joe Buckley points out that, that Tyrion also witnessed something like this in Marine with Danny burning the slaver ships, but that's just so different, right? This is, you know, he says that they seen Marine and Blackwater, and yeah, yeah, they're both invading enemies. Where this time they're kind of the aggressor, you know, and it's and and in neither case is these, you know, people that Tyrion knows personally. He probably knows a few of those soldiers or officers, or at least maybe knew them in a you know prior. And of course, Jamie and Bronn, he knows them very well. And in general, yeah, it's just like fighting your family. He's had all these plans, but seeing it in reality, you know, fighting your family on paper is a lot harder to do than in reality. What do you think? Uh, yeah, so Lady Gwen, you noticed that even back in the Game of Thrones, Tyrion mentions the Field of Fire himself. Yeah, the first the first we ever hear about the Field of Fire and probably the, the only thing we knew about it for ages um, is going all the way back to Tyrion's thinking about dragons back in Game of Thrones. He thinks his own remote ancestor, King Lauren of the Rock, had tried to stand against the fire when he joined with King Murren of the Reach to oppose the Targaryen conquest. Then he goes on to describe the battle in pretty great detail, and he concludes, Near 4,000 men had burned that day, among them King Murren of the Reach. King Lauren had escaped and lived long enough to surrender, pledge his fealty to the Targaryens, and beget a son, for which Tyrion was duly grateful. So typical Tyrion, a little bit of humor there, um, but really underlining that he's kind of seeing a, a chapter out of his own history unfold right in front of him. And that, and that's a really general rule of thumb. If you see something kind of major or like a reference like that in someone's first chapter ever, that's almost certainly foreshadowing because George himself, as we know, he put a lot of foreshadowing for the long, long-term foreshadowing in Game of Thrones. Some of these things have changed. Like, he originally foreshadowed Jaime being king, which is now, in retrospect, false foreshadowing. But he did intend it at the time that he wrote it. So George was probably thinking about a new field of fire 
as far back as Tyrion's first chapter or, you know, before he even started writing the book. So I do think that that hints at Tyrion witnessing an event like this in the books and him having maybe similar... Does it? It might not. <laughs> no, does it? I was going to say, does it hint at something oh. else? Because I was struck by the pledge. His pledge is fealty to the Targaryens. I mean, we, we already have Tyrion, but see, in what struck me is he's witnessing Jamie. Um, kind of standing in for King Lauren of the Rock here in this yeah. scene. Jamie's going to have a son. <laughs> a living one. Yeah, I was surprised that 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 none of the Tarleys, neither of the Tarleys apparently died. They didn't, they usually show it if yeah. they do, and there was no evidence of them, uh, of that. Maybe we'll see Randall Tarley smoking body at the beginning of the next episode. Yeah, or but, he's like so horribly burned. He was just out of the blast, or yeah. I don't know, maybe. But that's really interesting. So... Yeah, I'll have to keep an eye on on how this parallel these parallels line up. So we got Cooper and Darnell captured again. <laughs> apparently, it's funny that I say that because I don't think anyone is buying for even a second that Jamie is going to die. I mean, not in the water. He may die. He'll pro- he probably dies eventually, yeah. but he's not going to drown here. I don't and think. I, and I don't think Danny's going to kill him here. Yeah. Like, I guess it's possible. It's more possible than drowning there, but I really don't think so. We all think he has a larger story to tell with Cersei. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this is one of my only. This is one of my few complaints about the battle. No one important seemed to have died. Uh, although to be fair, there's not a lot of important characters in the battle. There was very and, and Danny wasn't in any danger and much danger, and Tyrion wasn't in any danger at all, really. But still, there's a lot of near misses. And Jamie's thing was just—it was cool that he charged Danny. I like that he did that. But the being tackled off the horse is a little—I eh, don't know. I wasn't—I wasn't excited about that. And it's a double near miss death that's not going to amount to anything. But still, there is a lot of tension here. The tension is what's going to happen next. What's going to happen with Jamie in captivity? And that's the foreshadowing. That's the part I care about. So there is a cliffhanger of sorts. It's just not Jamie's death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I think, um, and I've seen a lot of people thinking that, you know, saying the same thing, that I, th- I think the weakness in the scene was that someone should have died. Someone with a name should have died. Um, in my opinion, it should have been Bronn. I thought, I think it would have been a fitting end to his arc. You know, he, he had that symbolic loss of his gold. Jamie promised him a castle when the, when this war is over, you know? So, um, I just thought it would have, and could we leave it open that possibly Bronn did die? I mean, he was kind of I think even if Bronn, you know, next episode we find out Bronn's dead, I feel the same way that he should have died in that episode. There should have been a cost for for the viewer because there's certainly a cost for these unnamed soldiers burning to death. But there was there was no real feels like, oh, I've just lost something on that battlefield. I was prepared for it. Yeah. Wait, are you kidding? We just lost Major League pitcher Noah Syndergaard. <laughs> Ed Sheeran might have been <laughs> Sorry, in there Noah. too. <laughs> <laughs> For all we know, he was Lannister soldier. I suppose. It, it, How could you say we didn't we'll lose? Go with anyone. that. But there, you know, there, there, there was a nice little uh, symmetry. I thought to in the last episode, Jamie learning from his mistakes at the Whispering Wood, um, and yet here he ends up. Um, we assume because we're not falling for this Jamie falling into the water. Um, being captured again, as happened at the end of the Battle of Whispering Wood. So did he not? you know, kind of didn't learn quite enough from his mistakes or is there no, you know, this was unavoidable. Uh, speaking of which, and I mentioned it a couple minutes ago that Danny charging or Jamie charging at Danny there, um, I thought was really just an awesome conclusion 
I was really struck by the bravery, the futility of it all, reminded by, you know, of Jamie's reputation as a fearless knight and he's galloping straight at a fire-breathing dragon without, it doesn't seem to be afraid at all. He doesn't hesitate. Um, and then there's his history, um, killing Danny's father to save people from a fiery tyrant. So is that his perception that he's just trying to, you know, do the same thing history over again? That makes a lot of sense. Joe Buckley wanted us to point out that he wrote an essay on Tower of the Hand this week that he talks about how Jamie probably sees a lot of Ares and Danny, because especially because he doesn't know her. And maybe he'll be able to back off on that if he gets a chance, you know, in captivity. Maybe Tyrion tells her. Maybe he gets to hear from people who love Danny, like the same kind of thing that John was told to do. Walk amongst her people and hear why they will follow her. Maybe that will have Jamie turning the other way. Uh, maybe he gets that chance, you know. Danny is well aware of how awful her father was. So that's something, you know, that's something that maybe keeps Jamie alive. Plus there's Tyrion argue, would argue for it. He would argue maybe on personal level, which Danny might reject because she already accused him of being too soft on his family. But Jamie's a valuable hostage. And that is true regardless of Tyrion's personal feelings. Um, our friend Drew Hinkus wants us to discuss the possibility of maybe Tyrion returning the favor that Jamie gave him and letting him free. They certainly parted on good terms. Yeah, the problem is now that Tywin is in the mix. Like, Tyrion, Jamie never believed that Tyrion killed uh, Joffrey, but he knows he killed Tywin. And we don't know what his reaction will be to that. You guys have any thoughts on how Danny will react, either how Danny will react to Jamie or how um, Jamie may or may not change his feelings about Tyrion well, I think it's, and or it's Danny? Probably pretty important that you saw that Olena told Jamie the truth. You know, he yeah. he's only just now learned that you know that Tyrion did not kill Joffrey, like you said. No, he knew that already. He knew it already. He knew that already. Oh, yeah, he knew that we already. Got mixed up on too. We all got mixed up on that like before when it happened. Books, but he knew yeah. back in yeah, he never at any point believed that Tyrion did it because it's not the books. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was one of our crossovers. They, they also yeah. like obviously they don't have this conflict at all between them because there's yeah. no Shay. I mean, there's not not Shay. There's no uh, Taisha stuff either. Yeah, so. and and Jamie's of course not going to get to tell Cersei now this either. <laughs> not that he maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he still will get to t- probably. I think he'll still get to tell Cersei when he gets back. Yeah, he might. But, he might uh, if if he gets out and go. Yeah, if they let him go or yeah, flip him to their side. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that T. I don't think that Tyrion will let. Jamie lose maybe I mean be a nice little symmetry and the show does like to do things like that but I think you made the good point that he sees he knows he's going to know how valuable Jamie is to that or keeping Jamie away from Cersei is yeah yeah I think he knows yeah that well that point and he doesn't have that equity with Danny she's still yeah. mad at him the right. consequences of Jamie letting Tyrion offer would be would seemingly be far lighter than this yeah I mean yeah. He, he didn't see Tywin dying as part of those consequences, but <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, ostensibly it should have just been Tyrion gets away and, and there's no harm done, really. But in this case, Jamie getting out would would have an impact on the war and that could right. be a lot more death. I mean, so, yeah, it's a much If they thing. have Bronn, I mean, uh, Bron, uh, Jamie and Randall Tarly, Cersei has no generals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a huge loss. <laughs> pretty major. And so, of course. They've already sort of given us a hint as to how, what, how Cersei might deal with this loss even before this, this battle happened. But before we get to that, um, more, a little more on Danny. 
and Jamie. You know, Jamie, of course, is her father's killer. Now, how do we balance that against the fact that she knows her father was terrible? She's been told that to her face many times, and she says that she accepts it. Like she said to somebody, I forget who it was she said to, she's like, I know my father was terrible, or whatever, however she phrased it. She was very clear my about it. My father was an evil man. Yeah. So I don't know that she'll hold that against him. Maybe she will because it's a personal thing and Jamie's done other stuff, but, you know, because he swore an oath and he broke it, all that. It's really going to be interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, as for uh, Jamie actually being rescued, we had people in the chat asking about Widow's Will. And the question here is that I don't think Jamie can get his stuff off, which points to who could actually rescue him from there. And Aziz posited that it could be Drogon, that Danny wa doesn't want to lose these captives. So she... Scoops him up. I don't. I don't know that she has the ability to order Drogon to do something as specific as that without without hurting someone. I don't know. I don't really know how else he could get saved, and I'm quite confident he could get saved. But I don't know who else. Like maybe multiple Dothraki jump in, and I don't know. Pull him out. Yeah, like, they don't even like water. No. Yeah, I mean they didn't have to do this deep lake thing. It's not actually as deep as it looks, but it's still kind of oddly deep. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not. This is one of those things. I'm not an expert on soil erosion. I'm not going to say that it's unrealistic because maybe this kind of thing exists. It feels unrealistic, but again, mm. this is one of those things, just like the sword fighting thing. I'm like, nah, we shouldn't be so sure yeah. that this isn't realistic. Maybe it's just a rare thing and, and yeah. for story continues to stuck it there. But. I wouldn't be surprised if like, like someone in the chat said that, like, I don't think Danny saw Jamie fall into the river pond or get saved or whatever. And uh. she just saw the dragon fire and like, it wouldn't shock me. Like, I wouldn't be super happy if this is how it went, but it wouldn't shock me if Jamie washed ashore and got his way back to Cersei if there was never any Danny has some captive. Like, I think it's possible. They, they were pretty liberal with the logistics when Tyrion fell in the water in the grayscale mm -hmm. scene, weren't they? He seemed to, you know, be like 200 meters <laughs> under the water, and then he's well, all right. Well, they were pretty liberal with the logistics in this scene, let's face it, because I, I watched it over and over again from every angle, and there is no way that horse that Braun was riding caught up with Jamie <laughs> realistically because they showed it from above, from the side, from the front, from the back, and there's no other horse in sight. And then all of a sudden at the very last minute, yeah. Jamie's at a full gallop and another horse just All you see is Braun notice the riderless horse as soon as he jumps off the scorpion. But yeah, it seemed kind of far away. And again He was nowhere in the shot yeah. and to, to yeah, to imagine that he caught up that quickly. We have to suspend our disbelief. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an unnecessary action movie addition to the yeah. scene that otherwise was pretty awesome. But again, you know, they do these things from time to time. It's they not do. worth getting too hung up we'll on. Just... I'm sure we all agree. <laughs> Definitely not. So let's talk about the the aftermath. There's a lot of aftermath going on here. Not just we'll start with Cersei, but there's also the food. There's also you know Tyrion and Varys and what they're going to think of all this burning of everything. But let's start with Cersei. We, we didn't talk about Cersei uh, before, even though her scenes with the Iron Bank are before all this. But I think it's more interesting to, to look in retrospect because we didn't see a lot in that scene. We just saw more of the same. Like, except, let me back up, except for Cersei saying there are things I want to get back to. Do you guys have any takes on what she meant by that? On some things she once returned to her? Is she talking about, like, Sansa? I think, or? She's, I think she's talking about Westeros, the kingdom. This that's kingdom that's what I thought yeah. at first as well. But uh, enough other people are interpreted differently that I want to get other takes. Yeah, what, yeah. What, did you, Lady yeah. Gwyn or Yuckboy, did you, did you find anything odd about that statement? Or did you see it more mundane? Just as, you know, the Seven Kingdoms. Okay. I want my, you know, all the Seven Kingdoms back. She was being arch, I think, with that. But she <laughs> was saying something very simple. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I'm wondering about with Cersei and the Iron Bank here is that Cersei has the money now, but will this show of force from Daenerys change the Iron Bank's mind? As they said, their well-being is a manner of is a matter of arithmetic, not sentiment. Mm-hmm. So whether they agreed with Cersei or not, and you know had this agreement. I don't know that they'll hold to it if they see how strong Daenerys is and how much Cersei has lost. As much as everyone else is shocked by how powerful the dragons are, perhaps the Iron Bank will be as well. I mean, in their history, they would have writings of it, but up close and personal, none of them were alive, you know, when the dragons were around before. So I could see that being a reason for them to change their calculus, as you said, in arithmetic, is is how they do it. I wanted to say one point about... uh, before I know we're on the Cersei thing, but it's about Braun and Jamie just real quick. Um, yeah. A thought I had for just a moment was that people might be like, Braun sacrificed himself for Jamie. He really cares about Jamie. No, he lost his gold. Jamie is his ticket to a castle. He needs yeah. to keep Jamie alive. To the castle. Yeah. Right. He's saving I, I his castle. Out of He's his saving care. his castle yeah. and his future wife. Yeah, I, I <laughs> and, just and his future back. children. <laughs> Anyways. That's really funny. And, and it's a good like it's a good resume builder for Braun too, because I think that Braun could easily change sides here. He's already got Tyrion to vouch for him. And if Danny just hears that he's a sellsword, you know, that's basically his motivation. Well, that means he's not fighting for the Lannisters out of loyalty. So why not bring him over to their side? He's clearly capable. And he made that, you know, he, he made that great move to save Jamie, which we all think was kind of unrealistic. But the fact is he did it. And that means he's great. You know, he's a badass. So maybe, yeah, that could I could see him coming over and then getting the reward that he thinks he deserves through mm-hmm. Daenerys yeah. and Tyrion instead. But uh, oh, yeah. not to distract us now, let's get back to Cersei. Yeah. Uh, so a couple questions are, yeah, will she still have the reach under her control now that Randall Tarly is captive or going to be killed or anything like that? We don't know. We don't even know another Reachman that could take yeah. his spot. That so, really would uh, affect the... Iron Banks' thoughts on the matter if Cersei has lost the reach. Yeah, you know? yeah. But she definitely mm-hmm. got them the money. People maybe missed it. We'll reiterate again that there was a quick line where Jamie and Randall and them were talking and they say, the gold's all the way through King's Landing. We've, we've yeah. moved it. It's, it's just only, it's really one line. Right. Only basically the food was, was mm-hmm. uh, still in the wagon trains. Yeah. Which is important, right? I mean, she got the money. <laughs> but... Um, she doesn't have any food and the the whole that was you know it was really a two-part mission to to go get the money because she owed the iron bank the money but they needed the food Mm -hmm. uh to to feed not only the people of king's landing but also to feed you know the army that she's trying to to build so now she's got no way to feed her people her army which has been reduced um and is now evidently possibly leaderless uh that's gonna give the iron bank some reason to reconsider in terms of just risk management. Uh, or there's the possibility that she might try to kind of, you know, renege on the agreement and say, well, now I can't pay you back because I, I need money to buy food mm. or something, you know. She, yeah. That's she needs money for more floor maps, I think. One of the painted floors. She's an Essos version, which is yeah. a much larger, exactly. need a lot exactly. r- bigger room for that. Yeah. <laughs> I was picturing, by the way, when Tycho was there, there's this one still of, of Tycho and Cersei standing there, and Tycho's got kind of like a weird expression on his face, and he's got real big eyes. I didn't include it because I didn't think I was going to mention it, but it's. I was wondering like, if Tycho was like, hey, you spent money on this when you owed us. Right? <laughs> 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 the things people do with their money. <laughs> yep, boy, what did you think of the, uh, the, the food burning? I think this is a big topic in general. Yeah, I think it's a big topic. It's kind of I find it quite weird to think about this. 
It's interesting to think of the kind of burning this mass of food, you know, in in winter now from a kind of humanitarian point of view, which, of course, Danny would be thinking of. Is Danny aiming to spare lives with this tactic? Will it, in fact, cause a huge disaster in winter? Um, did she employ or dismiss John's advice earlier? It's really muddy waters and, you know, it confuses me thinking about it. What what does Danny think she's doing? Is she see herself as the good guy for burning all the food or what, what, what do you think? I'm wondering how much food she thinks is there, how much food was burned. You know, we know from that opening scene with Jamie and Braun and Randall and Dickon and them that they were talking about getting the harvest and collecting the harvest um, and that some farmers weren't particularly motivated and they needed to hurry them up and all that, which makes it seem like there it is a rather large um, shipment. We see how large it is, but again, I don't know if that was... 10% of the reach is harvest, 50% or 80%. And that changes how how things... Uh, For story reasons, I'm yeah. guessing it's going to be a lot, just so that yeah. it moves the needle on the But I don't the... think it's enough that it's going to really cause huge, huge issues. Hmm. Um, like, I, I don't think Westeros can starve. And I think the reaches you know, bounty and harvest is necessary. They can't ship it all in from Essos. A lot of it they probably still could... But I think the reach is crucial, so I don't think it was all of it that she burned, and I don't think it was all of it that was collected. I think that there was a big undertone here. Almost every spot on the narrative in this episode included talk of grain. Sansa had a line about grain. Jamie had lines about grain. And now we have Daenerys destroying the grain and what it's needed for. So there's a big, big theme about this, and it's interesting how each different character has treated it. Sansa has this... We're going to take all the extra, but we're not going to take any from anyone who needs it. That was basically her leadership style. Whereas um, Daenerys, or Cersei is taking, Cersei and Jamie are taking what they need to handle the siege and to win this war, regardless of the consequences to the small folk, which is kind of backwards because it seems like it'll be more desperate in the north. But that's mm. that's the Sansa's way of doing things. She's more... She's a better person in that <laughs> regard. And, and of course, now Danny has just burned all the food. So that's just like three different... That's really going to make Hot Pie mad. I mean, that is just cooking. He's She's no good. She's a bad cook. Uh, I wonder if it's like hurting his business that they can't get their, their Seriously. Shipments. He can't make pies anymore. This is, this is the, the... See, there's always other people who suffer yes the common folk who suffer most (laughs) exactly and that's why to me it's a lot more interesting if Daenerys has has just condemned a lot of people to death you know it really shows like like it's exploring the horrors of war and there's going to be indirect casualties of what she just did so it is interesting to me that that grain did have value to people. I wonder if it'll come up. Who knows? It might be forgotten about. <laughs> yeah, I think they talk about it so much that it's going to matter. Uh, and they've talked about it over the course of several episodes. I think when we get into the long night, I think it's going to be more of a plot point. But we'll see. Also, there is chatter about this in the books. It's in a different spot. The, the grain chatter is here and there throughout the early parts of the book. But it comes more to the forefront in, Elaine, in the Elaine chapter in The Winds of Winter when Littlefinger is manipulating the markets and teaching some of his you know other scummy lords how to do the same and uh, so we're going to see that in the books for sure and i think this is the closest parallel we have to this point because of course the show is so much farther ahead in terms of the grain being an issue but it is going to happen in the books it's just it's very much there okay 
So Cersei lost a huge army. Jaime lost a huge army. Whatever they they've lost a large portion of their army. It's unclear how many soldiers are dead, but the ones that aren't dead are probably captive. So there's a it's a big loss. But already, as I said much earlier in this episode, they've already given us perhaps a hint as to what Cersei will do about that, which is the Golden Company gets mentioned, which got me really hype. <laughs> it might just be a simple thing to get Cersei's plot going. It might just, you know, keep it going longer to, so she has more soldiers. It might be just a mention that never comes into play at all. It might just, maybe the Iron Bank will abandon Cersei and they're not going to bring Golden Company to her at all. But you got to remember, again, it pays to, rem- to remind a lot of what the Cersei and Jaime plot here is a stand-in for the young Griff Egg on the Sixth plot. And of course, Golden Company is on his side. So it really fits nicely that the Golden Company would fight for Cersei, given that they're going to fight for Egg on the Sixth, which is the parallel. We already had the Friends in the Reach plot resolve itself with the Tarleys and all that. I'm really hoping to get, you know, some of the Golden Company's detail. You know, we got it from Euron's armor. I think, you know, as much as they leave out some of the story um, milestones they often give us the visual detail so i have high hopes that if we see the golden company we'll get to see some cool armor some golden skulls maybe maybe they get to yell their battle cry i really hope that yeah yeah and i of course we've heard about the golden company before in season four you know stannis and davos and them are talking about the idea of him hiring the golden company stannis doesn't want to hire cell swords but later that season jorah says he worked in the golden company for a while which makes me wonder if the golden company were hired by Cersei if he has any connections and I could see that being a, a way for Danny to scoop out the gold company from under D- Cersei's nose I, I hope that happens I hope something comes of Jor having worked there even if it's just him talking about it yeah that's a that's a good point and we so there's a couple of ways for the golden company to interact with existing characters and Jorah is certainly one of them another one is Gendry the, remember the Golden Company, one of the main stories behind the Golden Company is that it's, it's like a home for Westerosti exiles. That's exactly what Gendry is. Second of all, his story is a lot similar to Duck's story. Sir Raleigh Duckfield was a blacksmith who had to leave the Reach in a hurry because the authorities were after him. And he fled to the Golden Company. And that slides in nicely too. So if we're going really into the deep end of this... There are a lot of comparisons to Gendry and Young Griff that make sense. If you want to entertain the possibility of Varys changing sides or abandoning Daenerys or having been doing something all along, well, this is where your theories should be pointed because Gendry could absolutely take that role. One thing, of course, people are going to say, Aziz, there's no time for this. Might be true, but consider how many things have happened this season. We got... We got Highgarden, Castle Rock in the same episode, both of them falling. We got John and Danny meeting in that same episode too. We got Euron destroying the fleet in that same episode. We got so many, th- they're, they're moving things so quickly that I don't think anyone can really honestly say that they don't have time for this. They can do things really fast. They can, they have time to do it quickly. They may not have time to do it, you know, a nice long drawn out story. And even think back to season one, Varys saved Gendry. I mean, that's the implication because that's the implication in the books. And it happened right before the Joffrey's thugs come to Tabo Mott to try and get Gendry. He's gone because he's been sent to the Night's Watch to, to, for safekeeping. So, yeah, a lot of lot of potential for that to not happen. But I love how well it lines up. What do you guys think uh, Gendry will show up? I, I tend to think just he's just in the Crownlands. He's just King's Landing area. Well. Is Aziz insinuating that Gendry rode across the narrow sea? 
I think it's insinuating that Gendry managed to get across the narrow sea, yeah, which I kidding. guess it's feasible, or that um, mm-hmm. someone helped him do that. Like, I think he was hinting at Varys mm-hmm. or something, in which case Varys should have brought it up. But I think that's what he was insinuating. It could, it, yeah. it could be, you know, in the books, I always, I always wondered uh, about the Night's Watch purely because they lost their blacksmith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just, mm-hmm. oh, they need a blacksmith. You know, they don't have one and they're going to need one, aren't they, when they face off with the others. And, that uh, you know, in my mind, I pigeonhole everyone joining the Night's Watch. So. Mm-hmm. Well, don't don't forget that in the show, Gendry's also standing in for Edric Storm. Oh, yeah. When he was on Dragonstone, he was he was filling that role. And when um, in the books, Davos sends Edric Storm away from Dragonstone, he does indeed end up going to Essos. So... There could be, uh, you know, there could be something to that. That's where he ended up in his rowboat. And it also pays to to mention that if somehow Gendry tries to claim the throne or people try to claim the throne for him, this will actually arguably have be more compelling than Book Egon in a lot of ways because Book Egon, we don't we don't we didn't know him until he came into the story, and he's we haven't gotten time to know him, and he's you know maybe we don't care about him that much. But Gendry, we care about. We already care about him. He's already someone we have emotion invested in. We've been waiting for him to come back all this time. So I think that's actually kind of neat. Although still, I'm not saying this is a likely theory. I I just was struck by how well it lines up with some book things. I think think it's a heck of a long shot, Aziz, to be honest. (laughs) No, I think so too. I, I think so too. Even though it lines up really well, I do think so too. <laughs> but I'm keeping some hope alive. Yeah, I'm team Jorah's the significance with the Golden Company. Yeah. That's my G- thought. Gendry could, could be both, very... but I mean, yeah. I, I think the other one's way more likely. Gendry's maybe more likely to be the dude that starts forging Valyrian steel again mm-hmm. or, yeah. or reforges it. You know, yeah. that that might make uh, be a more sensible, simplistic... And, and generally, Occam's Razor, the simple answer is probably right. And with Gendry, I think him blacksmithing again is probably more, more likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a super chat from Andreas Leveras. Thanks, Andreas. Jamie says to Bronn, whatever nameless shit heap you're from, Bronn looks kind of angry and sad remembering something, and then later he mentions he learnt men shit himself when they die at the age of five. Could this be an origins clue? Hmm. Yeah, I would think Bronn probably has a dark history. I mean, evidenced by that line right there. Yeah, back in season two or whatever, he says he's worked beyond the wall even, which was a strange comment, but (laughs) yeah, I don't really know what that means. Maybe maybe it's kind of like show Shay, who turns out to have got you know a far more you know noble mm-hmm. lineage than she let on um yeah maybe something like that do you guys have a take on that i just wondered if they because it, it kind of reminded me of uh, a little bit of urine urine's ah. um, backstory mm. so and the, the whole behind the beyond the wall i just wondered if they were drawing in little details from another character <laughs> <laughs> Yoke boy, you read a. I like this comment you wrote in the document here. You got to share this with everybody. <laughs> yeah, can, can, if if the Golden Company are coming, can they please shoehorn Maylee's the monstrous into the story? <laughs> I don't yes, care please. if he's dead. <laughs> Just bring him back. I want to yeah. see. I want to see him. I don't think he's dead in show canon. I don't know if it's explicitly. It's probably explicitly stated somewhere in the in the past in the story material. <laughs> but whatever, we'll pretend it didn't. Yeah. I, I think him. I think him and Kyburn could have some interesting conversations. <laughs> We've got another super chat from Atreides. Brand's change reminds me of the book Dune, where genetic memory causes a character to be possessed by a dominant personality slash memories. P.S. Oh. Keep it up. Oh, thanks, Atreides. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and George is a big fan of Dune. Um, mm. So yeah, that is entirely possible. Like the concept of Quisas Hatterack. Uh, compared to the concept of Azor Ahai, uh-huh, yeah. there's some things in common there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a pr- prophetic hero, and 
genetic memory. That's interesting. And 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 he is taking on a role. Uh, the the, the three eyed raven uh, compared to the Quisas Hatterach is there's some lot of things in common there. It's like a title, but also a, mm-hmm. something that only one person could be at a time. Mm-hmm. If I'm remembering my Dune lore correctly, in anyway. <laughs> so that's and, a good catch. Um, just to kind of add on that, um, the the actor that plays Bran has said that the inspiration behind Bran, partly, part, maybe you're right with your Dune um, assertion, but also is Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, Don't you mean Dr. Mm. Branhattan? <laughs> <laughs> it it was nice to hear Bran say that, and he's obviously heard it fr- from, from the Watchmen, source. That's from Watchmen, by the way. Yeah, yeah Watchmen, yeah. All right, let's do our let's do our worries of the week, and then we will proceed into the pure uh, Q and A section where we'll do questions uh, only. All right, my worry of the week would be Yara. I don't really think we're going to see her next week, but I'm generally thinking that I'm concerned for her. But in terms of people, I'm pretty confident we will see next week is Dickon. I don't care about Randall. I would gladly be happy if he died, so I'm not worried about him. But I am worried that Dickon will make us will take a stand and refuse to bend the knee, and that she won't, and that Daenerys won't be smart enough to keep a political prisoner that she'll kill them both. So that's that's my worry. Let me just jump in here with the. We had a great comment here from Kale Hansen. It says Arnold Schwarzenegger can play Melis. It's not a tomb. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a second head. That's worse, man. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, my my worry of the week is all of those people who are roasted that that didn't die and they're just kind of laid there. Oh, that, awful. That's the, the true horrors of war that they're going for. And also, I'm worried about Bron because I, I'm pretty sure it was him that did the, you know, the, the life-saving thing with Jamie. And he's yeah. got two worries. Did he get hit by that dragon flame? And how is he going to be, e- either or, how is he going to be treated by Daenerys after he nearly killed mm-hmm. a dragon? So a bit of worry for Bron, <laughs> although he does seem to be a kind of immortal character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been predicting. He's yeah. been on our worry of the week more than anyone. That's why he's not on mine. Because we, <laughs> I, we, I, I went through this last year. Uh, yeah, it was last year, right? Uh, with you guys, where we just every week. Like every he's week. wearing red again, but he never. Well, never after did. this, I didn't really have a worry. Yeah. So Bron is my worry, but I'm gonna, st- I'm gonna actually just go outside the box and say it's kind of a hope. <laughs> just can we, can we just dispense <laughs> the, with oh, this worry? That's, a, that's an even bigger reversal. <laughs> <laughs> start worrying about his death and hope he dies that'll change it i wanted to have died there but i do really want him to like be a lord with a castle and a wife like i just think didn't that he have so it for like for Bron didn't he have it for like five power. minutes i'm telling you like, he's gonna get the twins he's gonna get the yeah twins. <laughs> he did he didn't have the castle but he had his lady love he was about to yeah. right. he was gazing lovingly at away. his castle yeah <laughs> <laughs> Not at Lady Stokeworth, who was the talker, talker, talker. Just oh, we could get the curtains and the carpet. Like, yeah, that was that was pretty funny. I'm less worried about a dragon death than I was before. Now that they know the scorpions are out there, now they know to be prepared for them. And now Tyrion's gonna be like, okay, mm-hmm. now see, you do have a reason to be worried about your dragons. You do have a reason. See, proof, proof. And they probably have a bunch of those at King's Landing, which is probably true because Kyburn mm-hmm. says that he has all the blacksmiths working on them. I guess mm-hmm. they only got one finished in time for that, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I don't have a specific worry beyond that. I am still worried about Yara. You know, she's in captivity. I think Dickon, yeah, I'm a little worried about that. I think Randall's more likely to eat it here than, or maybe get yeah. eaten. <laughs> maybe someone gets eaten by Drogon here uh, <laughs> in the aftermath, just as a show of force or something, because sur- surely Danny's going to demand the, the survivors mm-hmm. to bend the knee to her or something like that. 
All right. So those are our worries. Let's go into our questions. Okay, so Shay, you can't read this one because this is directed at you. What? I'm going to read this question for you because it's not it's oh. not a question, but it's directed at you. Okay. Our, uh, from Lord Captain Commander Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel and commander of Ashea's Queensguard, oh. let's do a quick rundown. She is cunning, beautiful, <laughs> adored by the masses, and knowledgeable, just not just on the vast history of Westeros, but also instrumental on all things going on behind the scenes. I, have, of course, am talking about our favorite Queen Ashea. Mm-hmm. She's not talking about a character in the book. Oh, wow. How does she do it, and who wouldn't follow her to hell and back? Not really a question, <laughs> but I know. But who needs a Danny or Cersei when you have an Ashea? Well... I totally agree with that sentiment. Yeah. Thank you. I'm pretty sure anyone watching can tell that I'm very embarrassed, but thank you, Lord (laughs) Captain Commander. (laughs) Right on. Good way to start our question and answer session here. (laughs) (laughs) From Mark Joseph, a.k.a. The Snow and Winterfell, where do you think the book Field of Fire 2 will happen, and will it be Danny versus Aegon? Hmm. I think in the Reach, just like in the books, because that's where there's all this space, and it seems like the Reach will be solidly on Team Aegon's side. So I could see it coming down there, maybe. Do you guys have a different take? Um, hmm. I, I would say I agree. I'll, I'll say that to mm-hmm. give them a moment to get their answers together, just because I do agree. No, no. The reason I'm pausing is because I agree. I'm just trying to add something. But, you know, I, I'm a- yeah. adding. We can only be vague, can't we? Yeah. It, it seems like the reach would be a good place if, about- if there's going to be a field of fire. If there's going to be some dragon versus dragon action, then, you know, you can... Um, you know, if Aegon manages to, to kind of st- steal a dragon or a twist like that, so it's a real dance of the dragons, yeah. th- then you can go anywhere, can't you? you you're not well, confined also, to it, having a nice well, I was field. Say, could Thinking about be, that. You know, a, oh, ahead, a, field of, a field of fire was a dragon against a, you know, just a, a standing army, not, not dragon on dragon. So it doesn't have to be sort of a Danny versus Aegon. It could be one of them, Danny or Aegon, versus, say, the troops yeah. from the reach and you know if you're really going for a straight up parallel to westerlands and reach conglomerate maybe maybe that's how they get them on their side or something you know it's probably any number yeah and i think that you might have um yeah you might have more of a uh the golden company has a very diverse (laughs) army you know they have elephants and they have a huge amount of archers, like better archers than what you normally see in Westeros. And they might have scorpions or something like that. They may have, you know, prepared, by, especially by that point, by the time this battle rolls around in the books, they'll have be well aware of the dragons. They already are well aware of the dragons. So maybe they'll, you know, get some anti-dragon weaponry and then that'll make the battle more of a contest, whereas this one wasn't much of a contest. <laughs> mm-hmm. We got a super chat from Mike Bruno again. Thank you, MVP, this <laughs> live stream. He said, no question this time. Just thanks so much for giving us such great content to tide us over between each episode and the endless wait for the winds of winter. That is true. Thank you. Aziz yeah. is killing it with have adding live streams. Uh, we have three now, and he <laughs> wants to have another one with LML <laughs> coming up. So uh, he is definitely... Making sure you're well tidied over if the many Game of Thrones podcasts weren't already doing it. There I've, are so I've, many. I've seen the daylight many times um, <laughs> after being up all night editing, but I'm, I'm loving it, guys. I'm loving it. Okay, from Rebea, Lady of Waves, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. Do you think we'll actually see the Golden Company this season or at least a representative? And do you think we'll get a little more Blackfire background? Or will we get any Blackfire info when Arpozel is revealed, assuming that John will be still seen as a bastard? I... As much hope as I have for this Golden Company plot and for maybe even hold out a little bit of hope for Gendry being, you know, their version of Fegon, 
I don't think there'll be even a speck of Blackfire stuff on the TV show, unfortunately. But to answer the first part of the question, I do think we'll at least see a representative of the Golden Company. This season? Yeah, if not more. But, you know, there's been nothing in the trailers to show anything. But, of course, that's something they would keep hidden. But a whole other, like, army... Yeah. You know, sneaking into the set. I don't know. I don't know. That's yeah. maybe maybe that's more of a next I'm gonna say thing. my guess is next season. Maybe you're right, we see one person from there, but I don't think we see them till next season. That's just I, I totally I don't know, random. I just don't think we're gonna see them this season. The question continues. Will the Iron Bank continue to support Cersei after the Field of Fire 2.0, since she now looks like a losing proposition, or will the Bravosi hatred of dragons compel them to double down on Cersei? Now we entertained the first part of that already, but that's a good point that maybe the dragon stuff makes them even more wanna support Cersei. So that's hard to tell. The way Tycho is talking, it makes it sound like they're very cold uh, and bottom line about stuff, and it's their hatred won't matter. They sent, he, yeah. As he said, sentiment doesn't make their decisions. Yeah. Money does, so, or yeah. arithmetic. And the arithmetic, of course, he's referring to money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it might be, the arithmetic might be that, yeah, that with the money that they make more money when Daenerys isn't destroying the person they're backing. <laughs> and it's just, they might just be like, it's really simple. Cersei can't beat this woman with dragons. Mm. But uh, we got a super chat from Stephanie Vale. Four kitten mittens. <laughs> That's an It's Always Sunny reference for, for the fat or an in-between. In Does your cat yeah. make too much noise all the time? Kitten mittens. You're That's so our new sponsorship stupid. deal. Yes. We didn't tell you guys earlier, but... <laughs> We are going to have kitten mittens next week. <laughs> uh, follow up. Will Cersei abandon Jaime? Paralleling the way Jaime abandoned Cersei when she was a prisoner of the Faith of the Seven, le- leading to their final break. Interesting. Do you guys have a take on that, maybe? Is Jaime and Cersei, mm. any guesses on what might happen between them? As far as, uh, you know, it's, it's cool to look for parallel uh. ways for them, for this to go down. Mm. You know, look at, looking at past You think Cersei's going to be happy and relieved to he see Jaime? Is she going to be his, mad yeah. that he's lost his battle or that or that she lost like I don't know what mm-hmm. she'll have to do to get Jamie back or, or anything like mm. that I, I could see her being irritable towards him she doesn't like people yeah. who get captured yeah I think <laughs> I, I keep holding on to this kind of slender read of hope Ooh. you know this the show paralleling what's happening between Jamie and Cersei in the books this could be a way for it to for them to work it in I, my hope is fading though <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> 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 poor lady Gwyn. Her hope have... is fading what can we do to restore lady Gwyn's hope <laughs> it, it's just so hard to you know predict jamie because they, they've messed around with them for the books for whatever reason you know it's just it makes it very very difficult his arc isn't in the kind of shape we're expecting there's even no Valenquire, right? So, I mean, what does that mean? Does that we're all assuming Jamie's a Valenquire in the books? What does it mean but if there's no Valenquire in the show? They're not I, really obliged to I know Unsullied go the same route, are they? The whole thing could change. Just think Jamie's going to kill Cersei, so they're convinced of it without any hint of any. Yeah, <laughs> so you know, there's something being unsullied, telegraphed really. there. Hmm, interesting. I guess it's just hmm. the. I guess yeah. it's the Aerys yeah. stuff. Maybe the Kingslayer Queen yeah, stuff. Yeah, I would might just say that. that. That's a good call. That they might be taking that in. We got a super chat from Acre Frey who said, I just want to hear you four. Tr- to- I want to hear you four. This isn't a good sign for what he wants. I want to hear you four try to say Irish wrist rot. See, I, I messed it Shay up. Shay couldn't even say the sentence. So. I couldn't even say the sentence. All right, okay. I was grinning at the Irish wrist watch. Okay. I, I have some practice. We had practice. All right. Let's, let's, uh, y'all, let's see if Yoke Boy can do it. Irish wrist watch. Irish wrist watch. <laughs> he did it pretty well. Okay, Lady Gwen. <laughs> 
Hey. Also she very easily. She did it the most confidently. <laughs> the pro. Yeah, Lady Gwen did it best. <laughs> I like really slowed down to be sure. <laughs> I just, just tried to it. say it normally and as part of the sentence and it didn't work out for me. <laughs> Rob Storm wants us to know could ask us could Sansa send Arya to kill Cersei? Interesting. Yeah, we've talked about Sansa being worried about what Cersei will do to them. Maybe uh, Cersei should be worried about what they'll do to her. <laughs> Interesting. You guys see that as a possibility? I mean, Arya, Sansa doesn't even know about Arya's face-changing she, ability yet, but she'll probably learn that. Holy. I, I should think I should think that Sansa values Arya too much to send her off on another mm-hmm. expedition. That You know, I, I would hope that... Sansa, you know, wants Arya to be safe. I mean, what a risk going to King's Landing. Like mm-hmm. you say, she doesn't know that she's a master assassin face changer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Sansa would do it. I think she cares about her family being mm-hmm. safe and, you know, weathering this long winter than dealing with Cersei. Which Cersei, maybe she does know she is a threat, but mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't think she will. Especially Cersei. They're about to get some... Assuming the news spreads to Winterfell, they're about to learn that Cersei lost to Dragonfire there, so she might be a little less worried about her. Mm. We got a super chat during that, though, from Bob Bobo. That's a good name. That's 100 Australian dollars for the super chat. Thank you very much, I didn't say AU. I just said A. I think that. He says watching from Australia. I hadn't gotten to that. The question (laughs) is, why has Jon mentioned that the person sitting on the Iron Throne also has the title has the title protector of the realm. How do you Ooh. think John convinces Danny to go to the wall? Watching from Australia. Hmm, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess there's kind of two different questions there. So let's start with the first one. That's a good point. Reminding her that that's what the what the job of king slash queen is in the first place. The ultimate stated goal of a feudal ruler is you protect your subjects in exchange for military service and taxes and things like that that's basically the supposed to be the deal you know um so yeah it could just be she needs to be reminded of that that's just kind of why i brought up stannis earlier because she sure knows titles pretty well so she should know that that's there <laughs> i wonder if davos could be the one It'd be funny if davos would be the one to convince danny since davos convinced stannis you know <laughs> <laughs> it might you know, what i think for a lot of people to convince them and this is why I think that it's still going to be about a lot of, there's still going to be a lot of Southern politics and stuff happening in the South for quite a while. Because like John said, how's he going to convince anyone that this stuff is real? He, no one believes it, you know? And how, that's as hard as it is to convince like anybody of that. Even Danny is, is like, I don't know about this stuff. They might have to be confronted with it like face to face. I'm worried about it. I'm worried that it'll take that, it'll take that long for people to kind of join together and act on mm-hmm. it. What about you, uh, Lady Winner Yuck Boy? Do you, do you have any takes on on that? No, I, I just agree. You know, I was agreeing with what you were saying. I'm trying to, trying to add to it, but I can't think of anything at the moment. Thank you for the super chats to all of you. You know, thank you because we do split it between the four yes, of us. So do. it certainly makes makes our evening. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would just also agree with what you were saying, but I think it's a great point that he brings up that that is part of the title there, and I would love to see someone needle her about that. But I, I don't know how I actually thinks he think he convinces her to go to the wall. I would imagine that he, you know, gets some concrete details. The, something happens at the wall. There's there's some big event that that means that she has to go. Yeah. What 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 about what about the what about the house of the undying? What if, what if that vision comes Ooh. true? She gets to the throne and it's an it's an empty conquest, mm. 
and then what does she do in the vision? She goes to the wall. So, you you, you know, she has that kind of prophetic mm. drive, if you want to call it like that. Maybe. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. And I think maybe another thing is that it probably will be a number of people that convince her, maybe a number of factors, not just mm-hmm. John. John will probably be the main one. And we know that John, you know, without getting into trailer spoilers, we anyone who's seen any trailer knows that John is going to be back in the North at some point this season. I don't think that's a spoiler to say that. So we know that he gets to leave Dragonstone at some point. When? I don't know. But at some point, he's going to go up there. And how that goes from there, maybe that'll help figure out, you know, maybe that'll help con- convince Danny. You know, after he has an experience up North, he's like, ah, we gotta do this. <laughs> oh, cool. We got a super chat from the past who who was in our Queen's Guard. Um, and he said, feel free to dope up my name in your Queen's Guard. Perhaps <laughs> nice. something Zelda related Ooh. or turn me into a jester. Or is that up to me to change through Patreon? We do like talking to you through Patreon so that we can give you a list of ideas. I like the idea of being Zelda related because I'm a big Legend of Zelda fan and I've been playing Breath of the Wild for a long time now. So... Yeah, definitely message us through Patreon, and we can we'll message you, but uh, with more n- names because that's helpful. I'm gonna write this down. Thank I recall you. sending you an email when you signed up. If you didn't see it, then that's what you would respond to. But we'll we'll reach out to you as well. We'll make a note here. Thanks for that. The pest. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I've got the document. We got more questions here. Curveball uh, asks with the with the with the army burned. It seems Cersei's only offensive move in the short run is to send Euron's navy armed with scorpions to attack Dragonstone. Book Euron is cruising around Westeros to his east coast, and Dragonstone is the staging point to attack King's Landing. Maybe Book Euron attacks the Tyrell garrison on Dragonstone to set up invasion home base and or use his proximity to negotiate with Book Cersei. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there, and I wonder, certainly this season has made people consider more the idea of Euron and Cersei in the books, which is certainly possible. And some of that is based on proximity. Um, and I definitely wonder what Euron's going to do next. And it's really hard to, to guess at because, you know, it was hard to figure the last time too. And we didn't see Cashley Rock coming. <laughs> Anyone have any, do you guys have any thoughts on what Euron might do next? I'm really at a loss for that. Like we, we, the old town thing seems off the table. Maybe it's back on now that if the reach defects to Danny, maybe old town can be back on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Old town could, you're right. That, that's a great point that old town could be back on, but obviously well, he's, he's up to <laughs> getting, getting Cersei in bed. That's his goal. I don't think that'll happen soon. But I think Old Town, yeah, I think the Reach is something they need to lock up. The thing is is that we haven't seen any high towers. We haven't seen anyone of power else in the Reach. So I don't know. Um, Yeah, maybe he just takes it, just rule from there. It's kind of weird to me. I'm not sure. It's like a power vacuum right now. If you want to get real crackpotty, just imagine that... Um, Euron is actually working for Varys on this whole Golden <laughs> Company thing, and that's how he knew where nah. Euron knew where to be at all times. <laughs> I'm not letting it go. <laughs> Another one from Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroon, uh, one of our lordly patrons. Thanks for that. Uh, this goes for books and show, but why do you guys suppose we never see any Reeds or Kranigmen at the Wall? The North is still the Wall's greatest benefactor, but the Kranigmen just don't seem to contribute bodies. I realize they're in the southern portion of the north, but still, they seem suspiciously yes. absent. Or have I missed something? <laughs> Bowen Marsh. Well, Lady Gwen made the note here about Bowen Marsh. Mm-hmm. If they yeah. think there are probably others. There mm-hmm. is one, but I'd say they're, but, ins- they're, but, they're pretty insular. Yeah. yeah, I think there's others, but that they stay home. <laughs> a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them are, you know, this is a, this is a bit of a, you know, it, it feels like there's a lot of uh, prejudice against the Kranig men in Westeros, especially from other, a lot of Riverlanders, especially from Freys. <laughs> so it might mean that they kind of, 
they're more of an ex- enclosed culture because the rest of a lot of the rest of the world is looks down on them, and so they kind of stick to stick, stick to themselves. But uh, I think we're going to see them more in the books because of their presence at. Uh, we saw their presence at um, Mo Kalen attacking the Ironborn who were holding the castle, and you know if Hal and Reed's ever going to come into the story, you know he may have some people with him, and. You know, maybe Rob's will pass through there, and there's just a lot of potential there. But uh, it's it's hard to narrow, zoom in on, and narrow down specific predictions. Any other uh, takes on that? All right. Okay. So Mark Joseph, the Snow, Snow and Winterfell, has a question for Lady Gwen. This is from last episode because you weren't here, so he he still wanted to get your take on this. Melisandre says, "My job is done. I brought ice and fire together." Do you think that John and Danny are the song of ice and fire, or is it just John because of R plus L equals or a child from Danny yeah, that's a and John? Very great question. I think uh, from Mel's point, it's kind of like famous famous last words. My job is done. Um, not quite. I don't think. <laughs> I think that um, what everyone is missing in story, and not so much out of the story, but definitely in the story, is that uh, John is. The union of ice and fire. He's really the fulfillment of the the what was to have been the pact of ice and fire from the Dance of the Dragons. Uh, so he's already the representation of that. So putting him and Danny together is almost superfluous. And I worry if that places John in the position of being, um, you know, a last hero or as or high reborn. What that what role that cast Danny in? I think we all know what I'm talking about. Here, Nissa, Nissa, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, John and Danny have to maybe love each other first for that to happen, but yeah, that seems to indeed. be, you know, underway. Yes. <laughs> at least or at least to be married, yeah. <laughs> we got a super chat from Oh Miss Leah. Any thoughts reseeing Quaith again in the books slash show? Uh so both I think show, no, no way. In the books, I I, I think that I mean Danny's still in Essos, so yeah, I think it's even more likely in, in the books. I, I I'd say I'm in the positive end of things for seeing Quaith, but still pretty ambivalent. She sees she thinks she's getting visions from Quaith at the end of Dance. She's not sure about it, and it's kind of ambiguous. Uh you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. I think that's what I think I'm remembering that right. So I think that yeah, she's still gonna be in the books for sure, although seeing her like Maybe she'll just be in Danny's mind. That'd be a little odd if we never ever saw her again and only had her in Danny's mind. But so I kind of think we'll see her. But yeah, in the show, I think no. I don't think there's almost any chance she'll be seen in the show again. That she hasn't been seen since like season no. two. Did she even? No, she hasn't even been seen since season no, two, right? No, we they haven't. I, I the show, no. Yeah, I, I think she, she she was in like two episodes, I think, and that was it. She was. She was painting this guy, and that was it. That was her role, you know, just painting this bloke. <laughs> Didn't Bronn fall in with Jamie? Yes, he fell. I thought I thought I could have sworn that said fall in love. I thought a chat uh, commenter said, obviously. "Did Bronn fall in love with Jamie?" Also <laughs> <a> true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's easy to fall in love with Nikolai. <laughs> Yes, he did, but uh, in response to that, he, he he jumped in really, and he and also is not in heavy metal he was, armor. Yeah, he was he was wearing like leather. You can see him swimming. Yeah, uh, he can swim a, so. a bit. Yeah, real quickly there at the end. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean he wasn't like hurt or burned, but he was swimming, so he wasn't actually dead, at least not yet. <laughs> 
Um, from Anthony Gonzalez, do you think book Lannister soldiers in this exact situation would have cut and run? I mean, in the book, they had lost a lot of their experience slash quality soldiers fighting Starks, Tullys, and Stannis Baratheons slash Florent forces. The current Lannister army, if I'm not mistaken, are nowhere near the cream of the crop and have little to no experience. Yeah, that might be a problem that they face when, um... Yeah, I don't think anyone could face that and not have a huge portion cut and run. It could be that Danny does the same thing where she blocks their line of retreat with walls of fire or pins them against a body of water or both, you know, so, but they might want to run. That's the same difference. If their morale breaks and they're not fighting anymore, then it's basically the same result in terms of the battle. Um, Another super chat from Acre Frey. I guess you should read that. I can't see yeah. it very well. Uh, with the glass candles being lit, do you think their ability to communicate will be kept a secret? Who will mm. use them? If both sides do, will they be able to intercept others' communications? Ooh. And the glass candle thing is why I'm more positive than not about Quaith being involved. But we also have Marwyn as an element that could uh, come to Danny and, and use that. So, I, yeah, I do think that they'll be involved. And I think Danny and... Marwin are, are the most likely people to use it. Marwin going to Danny might mean that's one of the things he wants to teach her. As far as intercepting each other's communications, I don't know about that. Um, maybe. That seems like, I don't think we have enough information to answer that at this point. It's, we're too early in the understanding of what glass candles can actually do, apart from the communication and getting into people's dreams. And even that is not mm-hmm. entirely clear. Go ahead, Joke Boy. I think there's a a good chance that Sam will oh, yeah. be using the glass candles. You know, uh, you know, one one was lit, and then yeah. Marwin leaves. You know, he leaves it behind. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's ready. Go, and you you know, the, presuming that the same thing happens that's happening on the show, where he's Sam is finding out valuable information. You know, that could be his method of communicating this valuable information with you know the wall or whatever. All right, I think we should wrap it yeah. up. It's um, almost been three well, hours. Yeah, we're quite some... long, but at least you don't have to edit all of this. <laughs> That's right. So the excess Q&A questions will get cut and put into a special episode for patrons. It won't be an episode so much as just all the questions that I take out and dump into a file. <laughs> so no intro, no outro, no spiel, just the questions will be there. And again, if you want access to those, it's only a dollar a month to sign up for Patreon. We've got higher levels also, but that's you know that's a pretty good deal, I think. Hmm. Uh, so let's go through that. Let's give some thanks. Thank you very much to Radio Westeros for sticking with us for these three hours. Tell us, remind everybody again, where to find you. Yeah, thanks. And a special shout out to all the Super Chat people who who have given us a little bit of beer money yeah. for tonight. Thank you. I, I would... Uh, say come and check out we we have an episode all about prophecies if you like the standing in the mounts of the world azora high you want to hear all the prophecies laid out and and talked about come and check out our prophecy episode find us at radioestros.com on itunes we've got a youtube channel although we're we're, we're just a podcast if you like a song of ice and fire podcast Absolutely. come and check us out cheers and Lady Gwen, do you have anything to add to that? Or should I we just will, say, give you a wave? I will, Everybody both, wave at Lady I will add <laughs> that we also just released our newest quiz in our Quiz of Ice and Fire series to the public um, today, or actually at midnight last night. And that is also on Prophecies. And uh, 17 mm. questions. How many can you answer? See how many you I've, can get. 
Right, yeah. and 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 then and then you can tweet it to us. So we, we I went to the I went to go run out for a drink last night at, at the convenience store, and I saw that that episode was downloaded or was there, and I was like, oh, I should start listening to this. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, I don't have time. It's, it's only thirty minutes, but I wanted to start it right away. And I was like, wait, I'm like going to the convenience store it's and back. Only, it's only thirty minutes. Quiz. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I really wanted to start it. There you go. Otherwise, <laughs> okay. And, and of course, Radio Westerners has a patron as well. We are both on patron, patron. We're both on Patreon, and it's a great way to support the show in a recurring way and an amount of your choosing. And also, we give benefits such as episodes early, shoutouts, you know, nicknames, mm-hmm. things like that. And we'll have a lot of content after the season that's for book only. Yeah. And as always, you can be sure to send questions that are directed to one person in particular, whether it's Radio Westeros or us or anything. It doesn't have to be to us. Right on. So let's give thanks to also Michael Klarfeld, who did our video intro. And and the map shot that we had in this episode and these glorious maps behind us in all of our videos. Thanks also to Joey Townsend and my um, Jesse Koval, who have done our music. So, uh, thanks to patrons, starting with the Mysterious VR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. He's also got a podcast called To Wage War. He's a very enthusiastic uh, podcaster dealing with very lesser-known battles, and Jim himself is in the military, so he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and he's a triplet. That's right. <laughs> I just have to say it. It's just all I can think about when I hear his name now. I'm like, he exists two of them. He's also known yeah, as something like a lawyer for those who know the person. Been on Lord. our podcast too. Yes. Yeah. He's been on your yeah. episodes as well. At least yeah. at least one episode, right? Or is it just the one? Yeah. And uh, and as, as well as on with us. Also thanks to Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods is spreading the old gods by planting werewood saplings in the Reach, Stormlands, and Crownlands, and possibly in the seas. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. Our small council consists of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin, and Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Nyaki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains, and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Bread Fork. Uh, I wonder how he's feeling about all that burnt green these days. I think someone in the comment chat box mentioned that. <laughs> Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglaze. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemi Snuggle Bunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood holder of the Royal Snuggle Bunny. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune is sworn Ailsmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. Got a lot of questions in there today, too. Thanks for that. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spear Fort in the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, their motto, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods. He is sworn to House Ironwerewood. Their motto is, Listen for the Silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Our first sword 
or sorry, not our first sword. Well, sure, first sword is Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper. He gets two shoutouts this time. King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council from Mashea. Here we go. We have Lady Jane of House Selphagar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe, Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles, and Mistress of Ships. Then we have Lady Mai of House Swan, Mistress of Whisperers. Yes, and we have a couple other Queen's High Council members whose names are being worked on, so we'll get those out as soon as possible. They're wanting to do their own names this time, which is always cool. Our Council of the Beard is headed up by Grand Maester Clark, Protector of Wisdom and Beards. Our Kingsguard is led by Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. Our Queensguard, of course, is Shea. Yes, Lord Commander, Lord Captain Commander Hama Hellman, Selswood Sentinel. And Grand Flatterer. Yes, we got to add that. <laughs> Lady Nymeria of House C. Pro, I, I should have practiced this. I want to, like, roll my R's and then I don't practice it and I don't get it down. House C. Pertle, my bad. Yes. <laughs> Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Jane Grey. Lady S of the Tattered Spire. The first sword of Albion. The Pest, who will have some more being added to their name. And Becca the Bar, Songbird of the North. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden. And our History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Night Fort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. And First Steward Sir Jurian of the Torrentine, called Palewind. Also, a few random names that I like to pull nowadays. That's my uh, new little tradition. Sir Daniel, the Autumn Knight of Paradox Falls. Um, the Weary Man, custodian of the House of Black and White. We have Adesua of the Silver Tree. Weeping Lady Elise, Breaker of the Third Stone. We have the Bastard of Burnside. We have Maester Elcinador. We have Maestress Arha the Silent, who shattered a link of Valyrian steel. We have Lady Stonerheart. <laughs> we have... <laughs> that one made me stop in my tracks. Okay, I'll end it there. That's the, we'll save the next Wait, set of names for next time. I have a hand of the queen now, too. That's right. Mike the Knight is Ashea's hand of the queen. We haven't gotten a nickname settled for him yes. yet. But but I'm pretty much full up now. Yeah, I'm really true. close. I think I have like two spots. I think you have one spot on your council. Yeah, that's it. That was crazy to me, but thank you all. So yes, much. thanks very much for that. We really appreciate the support. You know where the power is. <laughs> they, know where the, they know where the talent is. They all know that you do a lot of work. Couldn't do it with that. Okay, so I think that's it. We'll say goodbye on behalf of Radio Westeros, on behalf of Ashea. Enjoy episode five, and we'll be having our theories and predictions live stream on Saturday, and we'll be announcing the live stream with LML to talk more about the symbols as soon as we get that scheduled. So we'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks again. Valar Rewatchus, Valar Rewitus. Rewitus? All right. Okay. We'll, we'll leave yeah, it as Rewitus. Sure, it. whatever. Bye, everybody.